67th episode of Rank and Review. I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and we all of us are living through some strange days. Most of us are cramped up in our homes, doing nothing but watching TV, listening to music, and just trying to keep our brains occupied. So, thank you for choosing Rank and Review to help keep your brain occupied. Mr. Lee Beckman is back on the show, and he and I are going to talk about six sequels that were made in the year 2019, or at least released in the year 2019. Lee is no stranger to ranking review, and we are going to have, especially when it comes to the two Stephen King sequels, a fairly in-depth discussion of these movies. As usual, you should go into the episode counting on there being some spoilers for the films being reviewed, as well as some coarse language, especially from me. Please send your, your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankandreview.ca. And if you're in need of more podcasts to fill your ears, I have some recommendations for you. There's the Terror Table podcast. There's the Shelf Shedding Movie podcast. Um, let me see. There is the Welcome to Riverdale podcast. And of course, there is Cobwebs, a gothic horror podcast. I got all of them out there. Those are friends of the show, Rank and Review, and if you want some more quality podcast, please put them in your ears. And also, let's all just keep being good to each other in these strange days, and let's talk about some sequels to get our mind off the ship. So, we find ourselves in some pretty strange days, Mr. Beckman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. here, here we are Skyping each other. We usually try to find ways to do our, our podcasts in person, but the world is broken right now. <laughs> so, over Skype. Um, so, thank you for being here. We kind of pulled this episode together fairly quickly. We're talking about the sequels of 2019, of which there yeah. were a lot, like there are every year, but... Um, uh, I just sort of hit this dividing line, hitting 2020 and this sort of, maybe because of this historical time that we're living through, I'm going to kind of draw an invisible dividing line now, officially for Rank and Review, and perhaps my collection, my physical collection anyway, as far as the movies that I'm going to cover, I think I'm going to focus on covering movies that were before 2020. 
I think, A, it's just good to let movies age a little bit before you, you can do a proper review on them so you're not caught, caught up in the hype machine. And I've got, like, well over 300 proposed episodes sitting in the backlog right now. <laughs> so I don't feel the need to add more. So... I just wanted to sort of maybe I'm, I'm not of course we're going to talk about a new Halloween movie when a new Halloween movie comes out and of course we're going to talk about certain big events in horror like I'm not going to be I'm not going to keep my head in the sand but I'm going to focus on looking back a little bit for horror so this is kind of uh, <laughs> the most modern episode we're going to see of Rankin Review for a while what about this list do you like and uh, why <laughs> why did you why were you excited about this particular collection of movies uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me, Mr. Parsons, back on Rank and Review. Uh, before I answer that question, I want to give a shout out to our current Rank and Review champion, Gareth Nickel. Congratulations on being the champ. Um, so, yes, uh, as well as to another person who shall remain nameless, who called me out on a podcast recently. I love you. Thank you so much for calling me out. I've always wanted a secret library going. This is great. So, thank you. Thank you. I'm sure Eric is listening. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> Hi, Eric. How's it going? Good to see you, man. And your episodes were awesome, by the way. Anyways, to answer your question on uh, why I chose this list, um, it was mostly to be Dr. Sleep. Um, Dr. Sleep was the one that really sort of stuck out and I wanted to talk about because there's a lot to talk about there. You know, it's a sequel to a bona fide, not just a horror classic, but a classic movie. And I think when any filmmaker, whether he or she, uh, has the, and pardon my male diction here, the cojones to tackle a sequel to a great film, um, that's a brave thing to do. So that that's the one, you know, it was more of the content that attracted to me. The other films, you know, intrigued me enough, but it was really just Dr. Sleep. Because yeah. um, it's a sequel to The Shining. Well, it was a big year for Stephen King. Um, it Chapter 2 came out, and we're going to talk yeah. about that one as well, and Dr. Sleep came out. And yeah. I, I was anticipating them both being big hits, and um, one of them was a substantial hit, and one of them was kind of a bomb. And yeah. Financially, I, it was. Yeah, and I think, well, I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to the reviews, that as much as I have good things to say about both movies, like as far as what they earned they should have probably flip-flopped in their success in some degree. <laughs> like, if, uh, if we're talking quality of content, absolutely. Uh, I think the marketing department at Warner Brothers needs to get, get their hands slapped pretty hard. I get the fact that you're advertising the movie as a horror film, that I understand, but th when they decided to release it, it would be like madness. Even a week earlier, and you've got an extra ten million dollars to nope. that opening. That, that We're going to release yeah. the sequel to The Shining, one of the greatest horror movies ever made, five days after Halloween. Five yeah. days after Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. Like what? If there is a movie that is begging to be released before October thirty first. It'd be a film like that, and I, I don't know whether they thought they didn't have enough confidence in it, but they released it in November. Yeah. Um, so, like, I, I don't know. I don't get it. Um, in some ways, I'm not surprised that it wasn't as successful, um, just because they're so different. And we'll get we'll get to that before the review. But really, they are two different entities. Yes, there are supernatural elements to them, but 
it, it is just a different, different story from The Shining. So I think people's expectations were definitely rattled. We hadn't read the book. Yeah. If you weren't a little bit prepared, I could see being a little thrown off by it. I guess I will concede that much. Um, the Zombieland sequel. We had a 10-year gap between Zombieland 1 and 2, which makes me feel old because it really doesn't seem that long ago that we saw Zombieland in the theater. <laughs> and uh, here it is 10 years later for Zombieland 2. I'm a big fan of the director of Godzilla King of Monsters. He brought us Krampus and Trick or Treat. So I brought my own baggage to that movie, which might have helped or hindered my enjoyment of that. We yeah. both have a bit of a soft spot, spot, I think, for sharks. Anybody who heard our shark episode will, will know that. So I made a last minute yeah. change because I, I inflicted 47 meters down on myself and I wanted to share the experience with somebody. <laughs> And we're all locked in our houses anyway. <laughs> so um, I, I I don't know whether to say thank you or fuck you. I really don't. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I I think whether I enjoyed the movie or hated it, it's really going to kind of come out of this conversation slash review because I don't know. Yeah, anyways. I've said too much. Um, and just because I mentioned the other ones, uh, Happy Death Day to You, the sequel to the surprisingly successful Happy Death Day, and it was surprisingly unsuccessful in its theatrical release, unfortunately. But um, I thought there's a lot of good things to that. How do we feel about sequels, Beckman? I mean, generally speaking, some of these movies, like I have no problem with there being sequels to, and some of them, like you say, with The Shining, you're really putting a lot on the table. Like, yeah. a sequel to 47 Meters Down is pretty low stakes to me, right? Like, yeah. another Godzilla movie was going to happen, right? Yeah. But a sequel yeah. to The Shining and a sequel to Zombieland, which... For as much as I enjoy that movie, there's something very specific about that versus Zombieland's aesthetic that yeah. it might have been better to have been left alone. It's hard to say. I mean, we'll discuss it. Um, so do you... I mean, we live in the age where anything that's financially viable will get a sequel. Is that a good thing? Uh, yes and no. Um, I sort of have movie sequels in, in sort of two different categories. Uh, and, and that really sort of depends... Yeah, well, I, I will. Anyways, to me, there are two different kinds of sequels. One is the kind of sequel there where it's duplicating what was positive about the original. Give us more of what we like. And usually there's sort of a, you know, the problem of diminishing returns on stuff like that. You know, I think of the sequels like the Friday the 13th sequels or the Men in Black sequels. Um, you know, those films are really, it's the same kind of sandwich, just you know, maybe with a little bit of different sauce, but derivative like there before. Give us more of the same, and, and that can get really boring really quickly. The other kind of sequels are the ones that have that grander epic narrative to them, like, especially the second sequel, it's usually, you know, the meat of the sandwich, and usually those sequels do at least critically better. You know, I, uh, I think of Empire Strikes Back, or The Two Towers, um, you know, they're you can't see them without seeing the one before it. And that's kind of the problem with Happy Death Day to you in some ways. Um, but on itself, it wouldn't work. But because it's part of a grander narrative, it's the middle part of usually a trilogy, those sequels I find to be a lot more enjoyable. Right. And and we've got a, a little bit of both uh, in, this, uh, in this particular episode. Right. I mean... I think that there's, 
there are movies that it makes sense that they're sequels and there's movies that are setting up to be you know a bit of a franchise what kind of what grinds my gears sometimes is when a movie is so busy setting up its world or setting up its sequel that it kind of slows down the business at hand and i'm kind of getting tired of this I mean, everybody wants to be the new Marvel Cinematic Universe, so it's not good enough to just make a movie with a story. They have to set up a world. They have to, like, plant seeds that are going to pay off later. And they do it so clumsily, or else they do it for a movie that it, these things lead nowhere. And so at the end of the day, if they don't end up making those sequels, all you're doing is weighing down your movie. I also think, as much as I'm going to say pretty much exclusively great things about Dr. Sleep, waiting 40 years to make a sequel to a movie is not going to pay off the way people seem to expect it to. I think as much as there's a very rabid horror audience, like when you watch the YouTube videos and hear the kids talking passionately about the horror environment, they're there, but... I don't feel the love of yesteryear. I feel like the horror fans of these age are very locked into their aesthetic. Their conjuring, their saw, the things that were made for them. They have a harder time, I feel like, looking back and respecting classic horror movies. And I think the, the Shining and The Exorcist are prime examples of this because I think those are two of the greatest horror movies ever made. And there's an underbelly in sort of the younger horror fans that sort of says, oh, those movies are slow. Those movies are kind of overrated. <laughs> and uh, I'm resistant to that. But trying to make a sequel, and really what Dr. Sleep succeeds in doing is being a sequel to The Shining, as well as an adaptation of the novel of Dr. Sleep, which... Uh, because the, no the movie of The Shining is so different from the book of The, the Shining, it was a lot to wrestle with. It was a really yeah. tough, tough thing to sell and to, to make sense out of. So yep. I, I don't know, like maybe we shouldn't have been surprised that it didn't do well, but Stephen King wrote a, a sequel to The Shining and we had to, and it's a real world we're living in. This movie was going to get made, but yep. I don't know. I don't know. I'm torn about sequels because there's this argument creatively there's nothing new under the sun you basically you're telling a variation of the same story that's been told already every story in some way is a sequel or a remake of a story that's already been told so by that rationale we should calm down about our sequel hatred but i kind of value something really fresh happening in the horror genre you know give me a get out give me a movie that just stands on its own you know you know what we don't need a sequel to get out <laughs> right yeah. Yeah, well, where do you go from there? Right. No, I, I think with you, and I, and I agree that movies that are deliberately setting up that universe to continue that story, and the Marvel films and the DC films, to even a worse effect, the, um, are a shining example of that. I think if you're based off a novel that's a series, like the Harry Potter series, um, it's easier to get away with that because the bridge building are done in smaller increments, and it's not, like, it's, it's a little more subtle. It's not as on the nose, if you will, right. let's say Iron Man 2, where it's, you know, you can see these other story arcs starting to form that you know that will get answered. Yeah. That's frustrating. And I think um, if any genre can get away with it, it is the comic book genre because it's a reflection of the actual source material, right? Comic books yeah. do cross over. They do tell overarching stories over multiple ser series. So at yeah. least it's built into the world that they're adapting in that case. But yeah. anyway... Um, that's a, that's a pretty good introduction, I think. Uh, is there anything yeah. else you wanted to say before I list off these movies and we start? 
our quarantined episode of Rankin Review. Uh, we live in a different world, man. <laughs> Just live in a different world. Uh, no, I think I think you've, I, I've said too much. Fair enough. Uh, today, Lee Beckman and I are going to talk about Doctor Sleep from uh, Mike Flanagan. We're going to talk about Forty Seven Meters Down. We're going to talk about Zombieland Double Tap. We're going to talk about Happy Death Day to You. We're going to talk about Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and we're going to finish things off with It, Chapter 2. When I was a kid, there was a place. A dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. Not many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something. I'm running away from myself, I guess. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I always called it the shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, they hurt people like us. These hinted devils. They'll eat what shines. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow. Hi there. Get out of my head! Get out! I haven't felt power like that in so long. They're coming. Doctor Sleep is an ambitious number. And as I alluded to in the introduction when we were talking about it, it is both a sequel to the Stanley Kubrick adaptation of The Shining, which is, much as it's a great horror movie, is not a great adaptation of the novel. But Doctor Sleep is the novel sequel of The Shining that Stephen King wrote. And stuff that is in the novel can't really be in the movie because if we're reliant on Kubrick's work, you know, the overlook still exists. So instead of the climax climax of the movie happening in the ruins of the Overlook Hotel, we get to literally go back and get inside the Overlook again and really relive the shining in a in, you know, a fun way. It's funny, it's like the second big scale blockbuster movie that has like an entire sequence set inside the Overlook Hotel. Ready Player One recreated the Overlook Hotel like this already. It's like, people are obsessed with The Shining. So I think it was a really brilliant move in order to not... He, he couldn't ignore Kubrick's movie. So he successfully made that sequel while doing a very solid adaptation of the novel Doctor Sleep. In fact, I will say, for the most part, the changes he made to the Doctor Sleep source novel are improvements. I, I, I you agree? Yeah. Oh, I, I'm nodding my head. I agree. It's yeah. pretty rare when a movie kind of kind of outshines the novel, and and the changes made uh, are 
raised uh, it raises the bar against the source material. Yeah. We catch up with Danny Torrance. He's all grown up, but unfortunately, he's inherited a lot of his dad's flaws, most importantly, alcoholism and selfishness and anger. Um, he, you know, part of it is the trauma of his youth. He's lost his mom to cancer and uh, just trying to pick up the pieces. So part of it, it's not just that he has the same flaws of his dad. He's wounded and haunted literally and psychologically by his childhood. So he's trying to find a new course in life and we reconnect to him and we sort of follow him through his recovery and he meets another child that shines, Abra. And she is incredibly powerful. Like if, if he's like a level B, she's A++++. She is ridiculously powerful. In fact, yeah. she is OP, as my boys would say. She's almost overpowered. In the book, yeah. The True Knot, this group of people that hunt psychic children and feed off of their powers to sort of retain some version of immortality, they're kind of punks. Like, they have, like, no real weight to throw in the novel, as far as I'm concerned. And the movie makes the true knot both more interesting and more frightening than the book ever does. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yes, there's going to be these evil creatures that are hunting Abra, and we have a grown-up Danny Torrance trying to teach Abra how to use her shine and protect her from these evildoers. That's basically the premise of the m movie. It was two hours and 40 minutes in the theater. The director's cut that I just watched last night was actually three hours and two minutes. They're both really solid movies. Um, yeah, I guess that's as solid as an introduction as I can get. Let's get into it. What did you think of Dr. Sleep? Well, if anything, to me, this uh, sort of is the grand opening that Michael Flanagan is the real deal. Uh, I, I haven't seen all of his movies, but the ones I've seen, like Oculus and Hush, I'm a big supporter of. I haven't seen his uh, Haunting in Hill House. Oh, um, yeah, that's really good. And yeah. Absentia, Before I Wake, he's consistent. Even the Ouija sequel, which I had no interest in, <laughs> because yeah. he directed it, it actually has some really good stuff in it. He is very yeah. talented, no doubt. And he did this adaptation of Gerald's Game for Netflix, yeah. which was one of the most unfilmable quote-unquote of the Stephen King novels that I could think of like I love the book but I don't know how you make it into a movie and Flanagan made it into a movie so yeah, yeah. he is the real deal you uh, I've been convinced of that for a while now <laughs> yeah um he has big brass balls taking on this white whale um even watching the making of it though like you can see him and his crew were so giddy and so in love like there is a lot of love that went into the making of this movie, even how they reconstructed the Overlook Hotel, the inside of it, and all the attention to detail. As a film fan, both of the novel, well, as, as a fan of both the novel and the film, I really appreciated that. And, and you're right, he, 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 he plays a very dangerous game walking that line, but somehow he manages to honor not only the original source material, and not only the Kubrick film, but also the original novel. That's right. Uh, I, yeah, like I don't want to get into the third act quite yet. Um, and it's also a very somber piece. And I think one of the reasons why you know it, it didn't do as financially well is it's more of a supernatural drama than it is a horror film. Yes, there are scary things in the story. Yes, our villains have no problem killing kids. Again, we see that in a very brutal scene. 
but I sort of, you know, I sort of took this Doctor Sleep a lot like his novel Firestarter, where we have, you know, very enhanced human beings, either on the run or battling with the shadowy organization. In Firestarter, it was the secret sect of the Z government, and here we've got a bunch of homicidal hippies. Yeah. Um, what works though is the drama, the pathos of the piece, and it's very, very believable. Um, Coming from a family that uh, we have recovering addicts in it, um, some of the language and some of the scenes they use come straight from AA, and that hit home to me. It's um, played almost like too hard for me in the book in a lot of ways. Stephen yeah. King is a recovering alcoholic. The program yeah. saved his life. He loves it, and he yeah. in like the the book is an unsubtle you know allegory about recovery yes. as much as he's recovering from his experiences as a young child and the trauma of losing his father and the experiences at the overlook hotel it's about him yeah. recovering from alcohol right yeah. yeah yeah uh in the same way like for a long time after his accident stephen king was obsessed with people recovering from brutal accidents like he's definitely you know looking at himself in the mirror here that's yeah. fine but i think the movie strikes the balance well but you're right in what you're saying tonally, and this is true of the novel and the, the movie necessarily. It's not about isolation and intense psychological disintegration. This is a power of good being set against a power of evil and the pieces on the board slowly coming together for an inevitable collision. And the characters are interesting and there is a psychic angle and we do get to see some ghosts from the Overlook Hotel, but it doesn't feel like a horror movie. It feels closer to like the dead zone where the dead zone from Stephen King is like this sort of fantasy novel really with a lot of horror elements to it. It's closer yeah. to the dead zone than, than the, the shining in its sort of feel. I happen to love the dead zone. So that's not a problem for me. Yeah. No, no. Um, um, but maybe if people are expecting to have, I, like I said, I was prepared for that. Having read the novel going into the film, that that's what we're getting. Um, the drama scene, Flanagan's really good at getting the best out of his actors. He really, really is. I think that's his strength. The fact that he's playing in the horror field, you know, makes me applaud more. But I, I know now that when I sit down to a Mike Flanagan joint, I'm going to get a serious, tonal horror movie from him where the actors and the writing is, you know, above good. It's really, really great. There are two scenes that really hit home watching, because I saw the director's cut version as well, that really hit home. There's a scene where, uh, where uh, Dan's at AA and he's talking about his eight-year anniversary. And, and, and he talks about his dad. And it, it's this loving tribute. Like he actually sees the humanity in him. And it's such a beautiful monologue and a beautiful scene that it, it kind of choked me up. And then going to the climax, and we are getting to spoiler territory, I'm sorry. I seen that I didn't like the first time I saw it. It is spoilers when Danny's in the Overlook Hotel and he goes to the bar and it's it's his dad bartending it, uh, and they have that conversation. And his dad gets on this rant about you know all these mouths to feed, you know like you know it just doesn't stop and all you want to do is a break. And he's going through this rage and you can see the look on Ewan McGregor's face, aka Danny, and it's pure heartbreak because that's his dad talking shit about him, his only son, to his face. And so you totally get 
why Danny is a broken human being, still a broken human being. It's these little attention to details by the actors that make this film so good to me. We haven't really talked about Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Rose the Hat, the leader of the True Knot. It's interesting to me, I don't ever sympathize with the True Knot. Like, I don't, like, uh, you can't cheer for these people who torture psychic children to death to feed on them. But it's interesting how much they love each other and how much every loss in the true knot is mourned within it. So often with like villains, especially in the Stephen King universe, they are so evil that like somebody they could have spent decades riding next to could die next to them. And not only would it not be traumatizing to them, it would they'd be indifferent to it or even find it funny, you know? And I I like when things go start going really bad for the true knot, a bunch of them getting gunned down and then Rose being psychic and attuned to her group realizes that she just lost some people that she has been close to for centuries in some case, literally. She screams and she cries out and she mourns them. And all of a sudden it went from, "I, I have to make my my life to feed off this girl it's a necessary thing to I'm going to enjoy torturing this fucking girl I'm going to make her suffer so fucking much for this because she has proven to be more trouble than she's worth but at this point (laughs) it's personal and again I have to say it's done better in the movie than it is in the book yeah yeah I I agree one cold 100% Uh, it it gives it a lot more depth and weight to these characters' motivations. I agree. The scene where she's seen, even the, you know the mur- the murder of Crow Daddy, which is this really well put together scene where Danny has gone into Abra, and we don't know it yet. Yeah. Or you know, at least, or at least Crow Daddy doesn't know it yet, and he's tricked in the whole seatbelt thing, and and uh, and um, Rosa Hat's response, like it's. You feel those howls, and in a lot of ways, you never do feel sorry for them because you know clearly Rose makes that choice. Even the monologue she gets to, you know, that new pusher, that the fifteen-year-old girl, um, she's accepted her evilness, but to survive, they have to go through this brutal and inhumane process, um, and, and it makes it a lot more believable. I, they're not relatable, but you still understand why they're doing what they're doing. Like, if you're tight enough with a group of people that you can plan and execute the torture and murder of a child together, you guys are, I mean, say yeah. what you will, you're, you're, you're bros, <laughs> I guess, you know, yeah. you're, yeah. you're yeah. evil bros, but <laughs> you're bros. And yeah. uh, it's sort of interesting that that's explored. Like you say, you feel the deaths in a way. It's not that, oh, you poor child torturer, but it's like the... That has impact for their group, and it, like I, I like that. The yeah. controversial change, you talked about spoilers. For me, the big one that I'm still kind of wrestling with is the fate of Danny himself. Okay. In the book, the journey of Dr. Sleep for me is, is almost him learning the origin of his name. His dad always called him Doc when he was a kid, and he had associated it with Bugs Bunny or like, what's up, Doc, or something like that. But later when he gets this job at this uh, old age home or this uh, sort of end-of-life care facility, everybody there starts calling him Doc without knowing that nickname applied to him. 
And the Dr. Sleep moniker is all about Danny's using his shine to help people who are dying make the transition over as peacefully as possible to yes. to sort of carry them over the other side. He found his purpose. He no longer needed to drink anymore. He no longer needed to, like, he'd found where he was supposed to be. He'd followed the path of his shine and between training Abra how to defend herself and finding this old age home, that's the answer to the question that was the source of the book. What happened to Danny Torrance? Danny Torrance ended up helping people at the end of their lives to transition into the afterlife. And yes. he found out that that name that, that his dad gave him was in some way a weird premonition and it came full yes. circle for me and I really liked that. Whereas in yes. the movie, Danny's dead at the end of the movie. Yep. And Danny's yes. still going to hang out and talk to Abra in the same way Dick Halloran hung out for Danny and gave him advice and sort of like the next generation of that's going through. But I find the ending of the book a little bit more satisfying for Danny. But the end of the movie is much more satisfying for fans of the Shining novel because the end of the movie, Dr. Sleep, is essentially the end of the novel, The Shining. Everything yeah. that we didn't get in, in, in Kubrick's adaptation with the boiler room and, the, and not, the furnace not being attended to and the explosion and destruction of the house, that all happens now in Dr. Sleep instead of in The Shining. And it is yeah. a very big climactic ending, and it's a much better, much more climactic ending, once again, than we get in the book. So yeah. I, when I say I'm torn about it, I am legitimately torn about it. But wall to wall, I like everything about the movie. Part of me wishes that it wasn't three hours long, but another part of me doesn't know what you cut out of it. Yeah, I, I gotta tell you, I kind of like the director's cut a little bit more than theatrical. I understand some of the scenes, like it was just sort of, you know, extra shots and you know, extra little bits, especially at the beginning with the mother looking for her child who has since been killed. Um, most of it I is. Like most of it is just longer scenes. They just like they're, they're yeah. the same scenes, but more. Um, and like it, I wasn't distracted. I think we actually see Abra's father's murder in this director's cut too. Whereas in the theatrical cut, we just see his body. So there's just a little bit more. But I mean, yeah, at the director's cut, which I enjoyed watching, clocks in at three hours and two minutes. And it's just one of these things. Stephen King yeah. wants to give you a big meal, so the movie's trying to reflect that. But that might have hurt its box office as well. That said, I'm a big fan. I, I, I liked how Flanagan almost, the, the structure of it is almost like a novel. Like, he has it in chapters. I did like that little bit. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that we get more uh, with Albert's parents. I think that's good. We get, a, we get a line that sort of hints at one of the twists in the novel that's not wisely shown in the movie. Spoilers for the book. Um uh, Danny and Abra's mother are brother and sister. Yeah, that, uh, they don't bother with that here. Yeah, there's a line that that strongly hints at there's more to, more to that relationship, but it's nothing. Nothing is done of it. Um, I really enjoyed. Um, I like the ending. I think the ending is actually stronger in the movie than the book. To be perfectly honest, I, I, I knew why he was doing it. I do miss the fact that in the book there's this grumpy old patient that. You know, works away at uh, at Danny, but at the end, that relationship we see that will come to the, come to fruition. I do love the scene where he's with those people that are dying, and how he's so good with them. Uh, we see that that evolution of the character. Um, 
one thing that did bother me about the book, and even though um, Danny doesn't get his comeuppances about the mother and the baby. Well, the whole journey is him seeking redemption for that. Isn't his whole journey? Yeah, he does. Like, he but wants to save point, Abra the way he didn't save that little baby. He's trying to, like, uh, clean himself up. And yeah, I, I think that was the journey of the novel for me, right? Yeah, I, I agree. But I, if anything, there's some compliments for that. I get that that's the event that triggers him to finally turn things around. But it's important to remember. And, like, Danny's a victim. Like, I, 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 never, I never forget that. Like, Danny... From a kid that has experienced way more trauma than I have experienced personally. So I always see him as a victim. But there's that scene where, I mean, granted, that the mother is dead, but he lets that baby to die and steals the money. Um, I guess there was a little bit of comeuppances for that with him dying in the film. Okay, well, to be fairly. He didn't leave that baby to die. He had He left that baby in that woman's care. But he found out later that that baby died. The baby didn't die because okay. he left, if that's what you're inferring. But he has the shine, and he knows that like he just yeah. walked away from that terrible, and it haunts him. It just haunts him. The image of that toddler walking towards that pile of cocaine haunts him, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, don't get me wrong. Like It, it, does, it does haunt him. I, I, I get that. Uh, the fact that he does it... Um, and I understand why he does it. Like that's that's just a mark on your soul that you never really get back. Yeah. Um, and so, in some ways, I think Flanagan gives Danny a little bit of comeuppances for that act. That uh, I mean, I don't think that's why he chose the ending, but the way that it happened, it allows that for him to happen. Um, I, I didn't mind the fact that he dies. I hate the last line: "Shine on, Albra, shine on." That's a pretty tacky line. Um, I think the movie wanted the true knot to be scarier, and they successfully did that by giving them weight. Uh, Like, his best friend and sponsor in the AA program lives in the novel. He blows his head off in the the movie here. Like, uh, Rose kills Danny in this movie and is really close to killing Abra. And in the book, she dies like a punk, along with the rest of them. The movie successfully at least attempts to make uh, more scary than than the novel did, um, yeah. and for that, like that, it improved on the novel. I have nothing but good things to say. The yeah. fact that it's constantly going to be compared with The Shining is always going to hurt it, and the yeah. fact that people who love the novel are going to feel like some of those changes they agree or disagree with is going to hurt it. But it deserves an audience, and I really hope yeah. that it finds one. This this is one of those ones that it bombed, but I like to think that 10, 15 years from now, people will still talk about Dr. Sleep and how underrated it was. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a great movie. Hey, I almost forgot to show you guys what I found this morning. See great white sharks in their natural habitat? It's awesome. This is for tourists. You really want to spend all day on a boat? I am going to take you to a place that no tourist would ever find in a million years. How did you even find out about this place? Let's go. Okay, turn your lights on. Sasha, you can barely get your ass through there. Well, at least I have an ass. The entrance is just at the bottom of the steps. You guys ready for this? Oh, this place is insane. 
What is that? It's an emergency alarm. Can you feel that? So when we originally sat down to do this episode, or we were going to assign the episode to you, you were going to do a whole different movie. We were going to talk about Glass. But then I watched 47 Meters Down Uncaged, and I messaged you and asked, maybe we could swap out Glass for uh, 47 Meters Down Uncaged. And I believe the words I used is that it's an objectively bad movie, <laughs> but that I needed you to watch it. <laughs> so I hate to like uh, spoil the meal like right out the gate here. 47 Meters Down Uncaged is a sequel to 47 Meters Down, which is a movie that was okay. It, I mean, for me, the, the element of the shark and the claustrophobia made a movie that was only so-so actually overperform for me. I know in my heart of hearts that 47 Meters Down is not a great movie, but because it plays on some specific fears of mine, I kind of gave it a, a shrugging pass. 47 Meters Down Uncaged is ludicrous, Empty, stupid, and it steals wholeheartedly from other better movies. It's objectively bad, and I had a fucking blast watching it. <laughs> like, I feel shame. I was for like this movie. I feel embarrassed. Everything you said is one hundred absolutely true. In fact, I had to start this review as fuck this. Movie. <laughs> Not since Adam Reed's Hatchet has a horror movie gone from completely nauseating to a kick ass horror film in a span of a half an hour. Honestly, the first half an hour and the last 15 movies, uh, 15 50 minutes? minutes of this movie are like it's dog shit. Like it's <laughs> unbelievably bad. <laughs> like just Looney Tunes logic out the window bad. But the second that our heroines go swimming down into the cave, it's it's like they just turn the dial. And what became was the next 50 minutes of sheer unadulterated horror and terror where I was screaming at the iPad, the very iPad that we I'm using to talk to you now, going, Dear God, you! And I knew I was being manipulated. I knew this. Uh, I, and I feel shame. A trio of that hour in 47 meters down is probably the most terrifying hour in 2019. Wow, really? I, 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 I was not prepared <laughs> at all. Well, here's, and, here's the thing. This trio of like women that go exploring these newly discovered ruins by themselves independently they are the four of them pardon me the the four of the women that go to explore these ruins have to be maybe the most irritating and stupid protagonists in horror movie history 
Like, even if you don't know anything about diving, which I don't, I know that the cave exploration and sort of underwater spelunking is an incredibly dangerous thing that you don't just do with a bunch of your girlfriends on a lark. Like, their behavior is so unforgivably stupid that we shouldn't even sympathize for their deaths. Like, that's how dumb they are. That's how vacuously, self-destructively stupid they are. And and then they're in this underground environment and you're just like, fuck you guys, I can't believe this. And they knock over the statue and the silt starts lifting off the floor. They can't see left from right, up from down. And I'm like, yeah, you guys are idiots. But what it happens is that we get, and I hate to make this comparison, Lee, an underwater descent starts slowly happening. We have these four women trying to avoid these albino blind sharks that were fed, I guess, the human sacrifices that were dumped into the water there and have somehow swum around in these underground caves undiscovered forever. That's the premise of the movie, but whatever. I would have gone with that if like, the script was in any way competent. <laughs> but yeah. you're right to it. I think you might be in danger of overselling it. But for me, the sort of primal horror aspect of tight, cramped conditions, underwater, slowly running out of air, sharks chasing you, sucks so hard. Like, that even though the movie is bad, on some basic, primitive, primordial level that that eclipses almost any level of stupidity that the screenplay can bring in front of you, yeah, on a strange primal level the movie does work i couldn't say that it was a good movie i would never tell anybody it was a good movie but if they said should i watch 47 meters down uncaged i would say yeah yeah you could if if this is your cup of tea watch it you might want to apologize to your brain afterwards you know (laughs) maybe read a book or something like it's so so bad and so so entertaining at the same time <laughs> so yeah. uh, I don't know I don't know where to sit with it <laughs> like I know that's the thing like I, I the movie ended and I was speechless and I felt guilty because like I was I, I screamed and I jumped like even Jolene came in at one point and goes what's going on I'm going it's the shark movie I, I don't get it because I agree with you I did not care for any of the characters they are such carbon cooker cutty cookie cutter <laughs> yeah cookie cutter and avatars that i and even how it's packaged there's this awful sequence when they've gotten to the place where they're going to be diving and they're having the, this cute girly moment and they've got this pop song that Ugh. even in the 1990s would be awful and they're, they're jumping around in their in their uh bathing suits and they're like all being you know sisters and everything it's so the presentation of that is so awful that you are gagging yourself and taking a pen and just jabbing your eye i even went i even said fuck parsons what is this yeah uh like it, it's so bad i and, think and and, and 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 look for a movie like this yes our characters are going to do dumb things i guess I, I even as they're going down you're going this is dumb this is stupid this is dumb this is dumb a real, even a person with half intelligence wouldn't do this. No. But you can make the same argument about crawl, uh, where you know, I disagree. Are, are I disagree. 
In Crawl, the heroine is there to rescue her wounded father. She has a reason to do what she's doing. In this movie, yep. it's the equivalent of getting into a lion's cage and putting your head in that lion's mouth. Like, they are so ridiculously stupid with their decision-making. I understand, like, I watch Friday the 13th movies. I understand yep. that horror movie people will hear a strange yep. noise in the attic and slowly go ex to, to look for it, and that that's stupid. But... Yep. I have to believe in some basic level of self-preservation in at least some of the characters. And at no yep. point did I believe... They were all at service of the screenplay. Yep. I think that the movie Look, does... Look, you and I get to make Crawl at a different time, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but a lot of horror films, at some point, it's that whole suspension of disbelief. To put our characters in this scenario, they're going to have to do something stupid. And I guess I sort of allow that rule to happen, so it didn't bother me as much. Look, Yes, my it went off going... No, a, a real person, you know, wouldn't be going down this deep and going into the cave. But that's I'm sorry to give writers notes to the movie because, <laughs> like, yeah. where, where do we? But like, her dad discovered the cave system. We established that she has a, a, yeah. an interesting relationship with her old man. We established that. How about her old man? found this cave system and had gone missing. And she was desperately worried, so she talked her friends into going and searching for him. There, they're motivated to go into the cave. That's all I fucking needed, really, in some, like, just one inciting incident to say that they're doing this for a reason other than they're suicidally stupid. But yeah. I do think that the movie accomplishes, for me, one legitimately terrifying moment. I think, oh, I think it's more than one, but yeah. Well, like they, they, beyond the jump scares and oh my god, there's a shark, which is going to work for me because I'm terrified of sharks. Yeah. There's a scene where one of the girls, the shark grabs her by the tanks, and in her panic to get away from the shark, she just unsuits herself and starts swimming. Yeah. And there's nowhere for her to go. Yeah. So she basically swims for a few meters and then drowns. Yep. And that was a genuinely, like, not a cheap pop scare, not a, yeah, I'm scared of sharks, so scared sharks scared. That moment, I believed that someone would be so panicked and terrified that they would make that decision. And, yep. like, it was a credible thing. And I was, so, well, maybe it was because I was so hungry for a credible thing that that really worked for me. And it was credible in that she panicked herself to death. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, that moment by itself worked but let's go to the climax of it because that's oh, where the movie God. goes like completely insane. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I could have let go with the underground descent ripoff and the caves and just said, yeah, it's a good jump scare movie. But when they finally get out of the caves and they finally surface, yeah, the fact they break the surface of the water, yay, we're out of the caves. And it was just like, at this point, okay, the movie's over. Uh, um, it wasn't good, but like it superficially worked for me. But now they're right next to the shark boat that they were originally yeah. going to take this tour on. And it is followed by three, like back to back to back, yeah. great yeah. like shark attacks on these two girls. And I'm just like... Yeah. Okay, fuck you, movie. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you, oh, movie. Oh. I was willing to like give. I was giving you so much rope here, but this yeah. this last sequence, you guys. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It, 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 that's that. That's when it literally became a Looney Tune cart. Uh, a Looney Tune cartoon. I, I, I was thinking like of the death of John Malkovich in Con Air. It was that kind of level. It was just like boink, boink point it's it is absurd and insulting and yeah our like both our heroines are swimming the boat and like get bitten and clearly would have like been turned into 
hamburger yeah. in the shark fight, but somehow survived. And we get this action, action sequence where they're pounding away at the shark. Uh, it's almost done weird matrixy style. Like it's, you have to see it to believe it. Like it's just too much. Like it even outshines the like additional endings to Steven Spielberg's AI and it's lunacy. Like it's just way too much. <laughs> And it's so insulting. Yeah, no. It's it's borrowing from better movies. I'm not even going to say that I would say that I thought the director was untalented. Like, I I think it is an is what it is movie. And, like, I maybe could call it a guilty pleasure movie. But a, a guilty pleasure movie with, like, the writer that, like, it is actively bad. It is not a good movie. But I think on the right night with the right audience, if you want to set your mind on stupid and watch some albino sharks eat some people, yeah, it works. Yeah. I also wanted to shout out sort of the sinkhole sequence. She, they All of the girls get find what's supposed to be an exit point of the, the cave system with a cable and John Corbett's trying to get the girls to climb up, but they screw yeah. it up and everything like that. Yeah. That sequence by itself could have been taken out of a different, better movie. <laughs> yeah. Like that sequence, there's actually a bit of suspense happening there. They could have gotten yeah. out, but the girls were panicking once again and they fuck it up. And, uh, you know, yeah. the celebrity kill, which you said you didn't see coming, which I totally saw coming. Yeah. I, I felt bad for not seeing it coming. It was one of those, what? Oh, I'm an idiot. Like, <laughs> no, he was going to save them all halfway through the movie, yeah. right? No. <laughs> I just like it. I've got so much confidence in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the celebrity death. Look, it's from Deep Blue Sea. I love it. I love it. That, that, that's why I feel stupid being fooled by this movie, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel stupid, and I felt... I felt like the insides of me have been manipulated, but I can't deny, like I said, the the hour in the middle of this movie is one terrifying sequence after another terrifying sequence. Even the logic that somehow like these these actors are wearing these uh, god like well, masks that somehow have these amazing speaker system where they can have like long conversations with each other. Yeah. Like, that technology doesn't exist, at least to my knowledge. So it's one of those, how are they having these conversations and understanding when usually it's like kind of, you know, sign language, not deep conversations. Um, I want to shout out the sequence where they've got that sort of weird, that red light that's making that sounds and thinking that it's actually scaring away the sharks and it goes, it's fast first, but then it's like slow. It's it's a ploy, it's manipulative. But I got to tell you, I, I scream. When it happened, and I went like, like, oh my god, yeah, oh my god. Um, the scenes, and I think it's done more than once where they're like they're, and then once again it's ripped off from the descent where they're they're in clothed courses and the shark is like biting away. It's it's stuck trying Trying to get get to them. Yeah, that's really well done. Um, look, one of your one of your meters for movies is did the film accomplish what it was trying to do. And 47 meters down wants to scare you. And I can't lie, <laughs> this moved me like it, I, I was torn up, terrified of, of that middle segment, of that middle segment. Like as soon as they get down in the caves, that's when the movie begins. And, and when they leave the cave, that's when the movie ends. Yeah. It, I still, 
I will stand by where I started. Like, 47 meters down is probably guilty of taking itself too seriously, and 47 meters down uncaged is not taking itself seriously enough. Yeah, no. But both of them kind of work for me on the level of being, I'm scared of sharks, and where's the shark going to be, and who's going to get it when? And on that level, I'm going to argue that I enjoyed (laughs) uncaged more than I enjoyed the first one. Yeah. But I'm also going to say... It's not a good movie. No, it's a terrible movie. And like I said, I am embarrassed. The director is Johan Roberts. He actually did the first one as well. Okay. And he did The Other Side of the Door. Um, He's really good at using the frame. Like um, other filmmakers, like the one who did The Conjuring. Who? James James Wan. Wan. Yeah. A good horror director, when they're trying to get, whether it's even a jump scare or are building up a scare, they use the frame very well. And Johan's very good at putting his sharks, you know, either coming from the back to the front, either in the background or the foreground. Even when, like, the sharks are going over our heroines or our heroes, and they're, like, holding hands praying, that's all really well done. So I I have to give credit where credit is due. He's really good at putting actors in really terrifying action sequences. So, yeah, I agree with you. The script is terrible. The acting is terrible. It is a bad movie. But it works on some level. That's it. That's it. My sister is gone. She picked up a boy. He's from Berkeley. Berkeley! You don't have weed, do you? Do I look like the type of person that would have weed? I'm sorry. Boom! Yeah! I have nothing against hippies. I just want to beat the shit out of them. We're gonna go get her. We ride it, Dawn. Start talking. You first. Oh, my name's Tallahassee. Is it me, or does, does he kind of remind you of... I don't, I don't like you. At, at all. I think you double-parked. <laughs> or more perpendicular parked. Hope we don't get a ticket. What is going on here? What? Hello, everyone. My hallucinating. So I have a lot of love for Zombieland. The original Zombieland is, like, the right movie at the right time. It was right on the upswing of the, you know, zombie popularity, but it was before everybody was sick of zombies. It hit that sort of sweet spot of being over-the-top violent but having enough heart and enough fun to it that it was just really easy to get behind. I have a hard time finding somebody who didn't like Zombieland, unless you just didn't like zombie movies. You know, most people were okay with it. Ten years later, Beckman and I, we went and saw Zombieland Double Tap, and I walked out of the theater fairly happy with it, warm, full of smiles and, and, and Yep, that was a solid sequel. I'm glad that they didn't wait 10 years and give us a lame sequel. And I've watched it again. And I do really like the movie, but I will say it's a full letter grade down from Zombieland Part 1. I don't know if it's just the, the, like, it's not as fresh and energetic seeming just because by the nature of it being a sequel of a sort of a repeat of themes and tones. But I, I think that they don't change themselves enough, and the few changes that they do make, they didn't really commit to. They spend a lot of time at the beginning of the movie setting us up these new types of zombies, and they do very little with the types of zombies. 
there's a lot of funny new side characters that they uh, introduce along the way. I, I really enjoyed like um, Luke Pe- uh, Luke Wilson and uh, Middleditch. Thomas Middleditch is sort of the twinner of Woody Harrelson and uh, our, our lead. They sort of like doppelgangers of our Zombieland characters. Those things like by themselves worked, but I think wholesale it just isn't. It doesn't have the the same energy and love that the first one does. That said, it's completely fine. Like if I oversold uh, Zombieland and said that it was an A minus movie, this is a B minus movie. <laughs> so it's like it, it, it's good enough, but I do think it has some problems. Um, it's it's not a kind of movie that asks you to think too deeply about it, but you don't have to think too deeply about it to ask yourself this airhead character that they introduce in the movie. She says she's been living in the freezer, in the mall. A character who is that stupid and that, you know, unable to protect herself, has she really been living in that mall for 10 years in the freezer? Does that make any sense at all? I don't think it does. This whole bohemian utopia of people who actively destroy their weapons and live in peace and harmony in this zombie land world, how have they stayed alive for the last 10 years? Uh, there's no explanation asked or offered. And the whole movie just depends on you just going with it. Yeah. So if you go with Zombieland Double Tap, I think you'll have fun with it. I think it's totally decent. It's not anywhere near as fun and as much love that I have for the first one. But it's I'm not mad at it. It's not Ghostbusters 2. It's not like <laughs> it's not like how dare they? How dare they besmirch the memory of Zombieland? It's like if you've seen Zombieland enough times that it's just sort of like running in the back of your head like an old copy of Ferris Bueller, this is another way to revisit the world in a fairly entertaining way. You get your money's worth, but not much more. That's where I start on Zombieland 2. I think to sum up Zombieland Double Tap, uh, the opening monologue by Jesse Eisenberg saying, oh, well, thank you for coming, uh, viewers. uh, There's a lot of of zombie entertainment out there and, and thank you for choosing us um, I, that sort of sums it up I'm paraphrasing there but we've had so many zombie comedies now by the time that Double Tap has shown up that what more can they show yes you, you know the characters are charming and Zombieland is one of those films where once, once, once again it's the example of lightning in a bottle where all these elements came together to make this hit probably classic comedy movie now um, Zombieland 2 doesn't offer up anything all that much new when it comes to zombie entertainment. Uh, and that's not, it's not its fault. I mean, we, we now have The Walking Dead in season, what, eight is it? Ten. Ten. You know, and, and it's, and we've had its, you know, you know, Beware the Walking Dead, whatever that, the name of that, and Z Wars and everything. Like, we now live in an age where if you want to see anything zombie, you don't have to look far. No. <laughs> So, Zombieland Double Tap is one of those sequels where let's give us more of what worked, um, you know, in the first one, and it's it's you know the law of diminishing returns in, in that. To quote Larry Parsons, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, that's that's your new catchphrase. Honestly, that should be like a T-shirt. <laughs> it's fun. Um, well, I also think that they could have changed things up a little bit more because essentially we have the same story happening here with yep. the two female characters abandoning the guys for no good reason, getting themselves in jeopardy for no good reason, and having to be rescued 
for no good reason. Yeah. Those are all flaws that happened in the first Zombieland movie in that they established the women as being super smart. And then for the rest of the movie, they do almost exclusively stupid things. Yeah, I kind of thought that was something they could have fixed in this movie instead of doubling down on it. Emma Stone's character comes close to unlikable in this yes. movie. Like, yeah. uh, she is not very nice at all. And it almost makes you, like, think less of the Eisenberg characters. Like, yeah, maybe you wouldn't be with her if there was another choice. Because she's terrible. She is terrible to you. Like, she leaves you ice cold, like, no explanation, with, like, the worst note ever. And, let's be real, only shows up because she needs weapons and backup to help rescue her sister. And yeah. through the adventure, of course, the relationship is rekindled. But by the time it was, I was wondering if it should or not. Yeah, I was I much more behind the relationship between Woody Harrelson and... Uh, uh, Little Miss Sunshine than I was between the relationship between Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Stone. And that was not the case in the first movie. They did the exact same storyline and it actually kind of killed that character for me. I agree. Um, she's not as charming as she was in the first one and does the same sort of dickish things to the Eisenberg character. And I... I had no sympathy for her, even when she came back and was, you know, kind of jealous that that the Eisenberg character had slept with, uh, I think it was Madison. Yeah. The Zoe Zoe Douche character. I don't. I'm, I'm I'm sure I'm saying her last name incorrect. And honestly, with exception of Woody Harrelson, her character was kind of the highlight of the movie. I liked her a lot. I yeah. liked her a lot. And it's typical of the character in a horror movie that I wouldn't like because she is the dumb blonde character and they're playing that note. But she's dimensioned and she's played with enthusiasm and sweetness. Yeah. Like Woody Harrelson's character seems to actively hate her when they think that she's dead. He seems okay with it, which I thought was kind of darker than needed. But yeah. there was an inherent sweetness to that character. And she did, you know, register that you know, Emma Stone was being condescending to her and would call her on it. And like, it wasn't a completely, you know, dimensionless character. She was the dumb blonde. Yes, she was. But she was well realized, well, fully realized character. Yeah. And not afraid to throw down with, you know, um, well, not only Woody Allison, but um, what is it? Nevada, her mm -hmm. name? Madison is the or, or Nevada Madison's is blonde. Madison's the blonde, but um, or a lot of it like uh, she'll fight with the with the with Nevada or she'll will stand yeah. up to herself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like that. I like that about her that she you know oh it's sarcasm right now, you know. And you talked about being embarrassed about being fooled by the celebrity death in the, in Forty Seven Meters Down. <laughs> I kind of felt dumb for being fooled by the the her death. Yeah. I was surprised, like, she was wolfing out and turning into a zombie in the back of the car, and they, they let her out of the car, and I thought, oh, I kind of thought she was going to have more of a card to play in this movie, but I was pretty yeah. convinced that she was turning into a zombie, but it turned out to be an allergic reaction. Well played, yeah. movie. You got it. Yeah. Uh, I felt so bad, and it had been foreshadowing about the so-called buffalo jump, that, yeah. when it, that when it happens, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Once again, I got fooled by that, so I did enjoy that. Uh, here's something that occurred to me about that whole business with the Woody Harrelson having Native American blood and pumping through his veins and the buffalo jump. In the first movie, there's this cathartic scene where they go into this casino and they just destroy the place full of like all these Native American artifacts and like 
stuff like that. I don't know if they got flack over it for the first movie, but it was just weirdly specific, especially if you come from Saskatchewan when people are a little more sensitive to these, you know, the, the, the stress between the cultures. This movie went out of its way to at least attempt to be respectful of yeah. Native American history, whereas the first movie has a sequence which actively is destroying it with baseball bats. And part of me wondered if this wasn't sort of a not-so-subtle apology for that. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I saw more as, more of a slam against Elizabeth Warren with her oh, really? role <laughs> claiming indigenous industry. But once again, I thought, am I looking too deep into this? These are all jokes that are going to be set up and paid off. Who knows? Well, uh, I mean... That's the thing that didn't get set up and paid off. Why the super zombies? Like, you could have just said, like, okay, 10 years on, the zombies are getting a little bit smarter and a little bit more aggressive. That would have been enough of it. But there was a whole sequence of the ninja zombie, which we never, never see, see it again. again. And the Homer zombie, which shows up for maybe two jokes in the whole movie. And it could have just been, you didn't need to set that up. It was, that was pointless. That, like, that change was pointless. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, and we get we get one joke or one mention of the Hawking zombie besides the initial introduction of it. Yeah, it seemed it, it seemed that, that those zombies should have played a lot bigger. Or just introduced the T eight hundred zombie, whatever. Yeah. Whatever it was called. I mean that angle was neat, but yeah, they spent a lot of time setting up those zombies and we rarely see them again. Um I did as like... much as I like Bill Murray they, yeah. they, they tacked on his appearance. An afterthought. A total afterthought. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess like, I get... Like, you could have gone for another celebrity cameo, but who are you going to get to top that? I don't I don't know how you top that that moment from the first movie. I really did like Rosario Dawson's character. I thought she was a nice addition to the group and gave, you know... Yeah. Uh, made Woody Harrelson's character suddenly less sad. Yeah. <laughs> I even like the Berkeley character. I mean, I, I know we're meant to hate him because he's a douche. But all the new characters worked for me. I just didn't know how Madison or Berkeley could stay alive in Zombieland, being that dumb and never having even a weapon on them. It just and then being so blissfully and happy and like whatever. Well, obviously you're not an American, Larry. So there you go. <laughs> I feel like I've been focusing on the negatives, though. Like the fact is, is that it's a charming, fun zombie comedy. I just noticed yeah. that, like, upon watching it again, right away the flaws started presenting themselves to me in a way that yeah. they didn't for the first Zombieland movie. It is an yeah. adequate sequel. I'm not foaming at the mouth. But I would never say don't watch Zombieland Double Tap. It's a total good way to kill 90 minutes. I don't want to talk anyone out of it is what I'm saying. It, like It's yeah. fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's just not great. It's good. <laughs> to quote James Lawrence Parsons III, it's fine. It's fine. Same day, same day! Everything's different this time. Now, the killer is coming after all of us. That means I'm gonna have to die over. Bye! And over again. To save all of you. Damn, this is crazy, man. If I don't stop the killer, more people will die. If I die again, I could stay dead. Failure's not an option. All right, let's see what you got. So, uh, I was a big fan of Happy Death Day, although I was sort of... It wasn't what I expected it to be. I was expecting it like a Groundhog Day 
slasher movie. We, we, we're just going to see a bunch of variants of this girl getting killed over and over again. And as it turns out, the movie's not that obsessed with seeing this woman die uh, grisly death after grisly death. It was more about her character growing and her solving who was this person who wanted her dead so bad. And it turns out because she was such a shitty person, there was a lot of suspects to go through and she ended up dying a lot of times. It was a successful movie, and when I heard that they were, you know, rushing production into the sequel, I kind of worried about them, kind of, how do you repeat that gag? On a, If you're making a movie based on repetition, you know, how can you double down on that movie? So I'm going to give a lot of compliments to the ambition of this sequel by adding the science-fi component to the movie they successfully made it fresh enough and different enough that it's not the same movie all over again. That said, I think front to back, the first movie is just a better movie of the, of the two, I think overall. I think they have to explain so much in this movie that things get slowed down. And because we understand the world and we understand how the structure of this movie is going to work, we are much more able to predict things that are, are happening that are going to happen in the movie than I felt like I was in the first movie. If you had to make a sequel to Happy Death Day, which maybe you didn't, this is a totally decent one. It, it, it lives in that same aesthetic. Once again, we have a really strong central performance from the main actress playing Tree. Um, it's good enough to sort of justify its existence as a sequel. Unfortunately, unlike the first movie, it did not do very well at all in its theatrical release. And even though it's trying really hard at the end to set up a third movie, I don't think we're going to get that. And that kind of goes to another sort of problem that horror movies, especially successful ones, have. Well, we've had a successful movie. How do we turn this into ten successful movies? <laughs> right? I like the movie. It's a complex thing to sell. It's ambitious. Much like the first movie, the bloodlust in me thinks that maybe if they'd gone for the R rating, they could have had a little bit more sort of Sam Raimi-esque over-the-top fun with the fact that they get to kill their characters over and over again. Like, that's a, that's a real option that they had, and they didn't do it in the first movie, so why not up the stakes for the second? But that's me as a bloodthirsty horror fan. If I look at it as a sort of fantastical sci-fi adventure with horror elements... It completely works, and I think it. both of the movies actually have a much broader audience. I think that they would reach out to people beyond the horror genre. So, mainly good things to say about Happy Death Day to you by sequel standards. As a sequel, very solid. As a movie by itself, it has its problems, but I'm happy with it. That's where I start. Um, yeah, once again, I sort of echo your sentiments. Um... I talked about earlier how usually a movie, a Hollywood movie sequels fall into you know two different categories. One of you know give us a model more of the same that worked, or you know we're we're universe expanding, we're we're creating an, a more epic narrative, and that's what Happy Death Day to you it it kind of has both, where it's trying to expand its universe and explain itself more to greater risk. Because usually when horror sequels try and explain the origin of you know the evil. It usually that's a big sign that your movie is going down the toilet, and it's trying to explain while our lead character Tree, played by Jessica Roth, I, 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 I hope I got her name correct, um, why she was jumping 
from dimension to, to dimension. We get that explained. And it actually, we actually start off thinking that our lead protagonist is going to be somebody different. Uh, what's his name here? Uh, it's the Asian kid who, who's in the repetition Ryan, of the Ryan first movie. Ryan, played by Fee Vu. We think that he is going to be our lead character for the first 20 minutes, and then it goes back to Tree. Part of the reason I think the, the, these two movies, or at least the first one was so, so successful, is the sheer charisma by Jessica Ta. She takes you know a, a character that we should really not like, and through her you know through her character arc we understand her and she makes things for the better. She like, she's a really good comedic actor in a lot of ways, just for the situation she's put in, uh, and she's so engaging to watch that you go along with the ride with her pretty easily. Um, she's also surrounded by some great supporting characters. We learn more about. You know the geeky, the geeky scientists uh, a lot more, which was sort of a treat. Um, the film really, to me, finds its footing when its dark heart starts to show a little bit. Uh, when Tree, who finds out that she's in another dimension, and even though there's some happy things in her life, her love interest, uh, played by a Jason Blum lookalike, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, is now you know the boyfriend of her sort of socialite main enemy her rival and, she, yeah. and she's told and she's told she you know she doesn't have to die by the killer um you know they're trying to solve the problem of you know getting back to the original dimension but so she, but she doesn't want to get killed by this killer anymore so she starts killing herself and then that brief sequence i was laughing and laughing and laughing and it culminates in this beautiful beautiful scene where she sees the skydiving advertisement right after she'd seen her boyfriend Mac with her, her mortal enemy, and she's had enough, and proceeds to go skydiving in her underwear without a parachute and land right in front of this couple while giving the finger. I don't know. I laughed pretty hard at that. Yeah, I thought, okay, I now like you're the... finding your dark heart. This is good. We're going somewhere. I like that she's trying to like take initiative too. So, like if she's got to die every day, at least she can die on her own terms, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of cool. But the other thing that's keeping her there, it's not just the selfish thing. Uh, the the boy, her mom's back in this yeah. in this alternate universe. Her mom's alive. In the other movie, I'm assuming everyone's listening has seen the first movie. Her mom yeah. has died. One of the interesting and somewhat troublesome things about both of these movies is the fact that the clock gets reset for her every day but not for everyone else she has yeah. a beautiful heart-to-heart -heart scene where she talks to her dad about her mom's death in the first movie and when that clock resets she's had that conversation but her dad hasn't and that kind of yeah. sucks for her dad in this movie yeah. she gets to say goodbye to her mom which is really yeah. nice for her but again yeah. it's got this source code problem once we talk about these parallel universes the way i see it each one of these timelines are legitimate things that happened. These are the way they actually played out. Anytime she died in that world, she's dead. And her yeah. parents mourn her and her murder goes unsolved or whatever. Like, So we really get, at the end, one happy ending out of a, a hundred unhappy endings that we get to you know roll credits on. Yeah. And is, is that a way that... Can we be happy with that ending? I have a similar question about Source Code. I like that movie, but it, it makes yeah. me ask that question. <laughs> Um, she well, gets to grow as a character, but 
Yeah, the other people don't see it. As far as they're concerned, one day Tree woke up and she was a completely different person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, even the two Ryans, uh, when they're they're in the scene together in the laboratory, I thought, well, even by sort of you know time jumping rules, the second that one would touch the other, wouldn't something you know weird happen? Hmm. I don't know. But that's if we were in Southland Tales, the world would end. Sorry, I was just yeah. going to say, if we were yeah. in Southland Tales, that would end the world. That's all. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we've got two of them in the same universe. And I kind of went, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just enjoy this movie. Um, to me, that uh, this is sort of the screen uh, series of this generation. You know, you've got these sort of cool pop culture hip, you know, hip uh, characters that are, you know, that have got charisma and are entertaining to watch. And they're sort of done in a slasher light. Uh, film series. It is sad that Christopher Landon, it seems, won't be able to sort of finish the trilogy. I'd be curious to see what they had uh, more in store. Because I know it wasn't financially successful. It's pretty cheesy. I mean, even the whole sparks flying as they kiss at the end was like, I, I rolled my eyes a little bit. But it's it's light and entertaining enough that I kind of, I enjoyed this ride. I agree. When it gets bogged down trying to explain all the dimension stuff, it sort of slows the movie down where that wasn't the case with Happy Death Day. And you do need to sort of watch Happy Death Day to follow along what really is going on. Even with a lot of the jokes uh, with Happy Death Day 2, you really do need to see the first. Well, uh, and like, because it's a different dimension, the, the murderer yeah. is different. Like the person who's trying to kill her is not the same person that was trying to kill her in the original movie. Um, yeah. Like some of the same characters are there, some of the same dynamics are there, but every time she dies, they can they can flip it a little bit, they can mess with it, yeah. which is gives them a lot of opportunities story wise. But again, I think part of the problem that might have hurt them for the sequel is because because it is a slasher Groundhog Day, like that's essentially the premise of the movie. The movie's built on repetition. And this is something that you will run into when you revisit Groundhog's Day. It's a charming movie, but because you're seeing variations of the same scenes repeating themselves over and over and over again, yeah. it, it, it does have this sort of tiresome quality to it. Like, you, you put yourself in the position of that character. Every time she wakes up in the same bedroom, she gets more and more pissed off about it. You know, God. I also think it's interesting, the sequel, like I say, they balance the sequel. Like, in the first movie, she has that great scene with her dad. In this one, she has a great scene with her mom. In the first movie, they have that great transition where she gets spiked in the head with the baseball bat. And yeah. as she falls down, she just lands in the bed waking up. In this yeah. one, she falls off the belt, or she throws herself off the bell tower and lands yeah. in bed. Like, it, it echoes back to the first movie in a complimentary kind of way. Yeah. But... Arguably, they are repeating themselves too. Yeah, but it's fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, it's fine. Um, I, one of the big things that's sort of engaging about Happy Death Day is you are sort of you're waiting to see who the killer is. It's the whole ten little Indians, and so when it's revealed, you go, Ah, I could care. Like, the movie really doesn't really care who the killer is this time. It's far more interested in playing in this sort of sci-fi universe. And that's why it almost works. Well, and it's an unsolvable killer, because in theory, every time she dies, the killer could be somebody else. Like, Yeah, but <laughs> you're more invested in, in finding out who the killer is. In the in, first movie. first one, where this one, I didn't care. Yeah. And it comes, really, it comes out of the blue that I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. 
So uh, that, yeah, it was, like I said, it was more obsessed with the whole dimension jumping and slaying that than it was sort of solving the mystery. And that's where it kind of loses me a little bit. And it might be more sci-fi than horror, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, it is. But but the fact that they're giving us something new in a sort of recycled pack, like I said, it, 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 it was trying to do both the sort of sequel structures were give us more of the same but expand on its universe which I found kind of unique in that way but it's scream like to me it is sort of a scream like series and if that sounds entertaining to you check it out just make sure you watch yep. them in order <laughs> you know um, yeah and well, uh, you, you whatever happens with this guy I'm sure he'll have make more movies it does seem like it wants to be a trilogy like maybe yeah. wait a few years not too long but like I don't know the whole thing with Bloomhouse is to make movies super cheap, uh, yeah. so that the rate of return is, you know, really doable. Um, I have to believe that these two movies are charming enough that maybe if they built a bit of a cult noise around them again, that perhaps yeah. the third movie might pay off. Yeah, um, I do want to talk about um, uh, also the boyfriend character. I'm just going to bring him up here. Um, I saw an interview with Jason Bloom recently. He was on uh, the Daily Wire, actually a conservative show. Uh, Blum's a liberal, uh, but he was out promoting his movie The Hunt, and he um, talked about his college days. Uh, his college roommate was actually Noel Bumbach. Weird. And, yeah, and on like, on the interview, he talked about how his first movie that he was producer on was, of course, Kicking and Screaming. Um, and he talked about that experience and how. Him and Noah, Noah used to be best friends, but that was the movie that ended their friendship and, and whatnot. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting interview. And then I watched Happy Death Day to You, and the boyfriend, Carter, is a dead ringer for Jason Bloom. that it's it's not coincidence. So I, I wondered why they had this guy that looked a lot like a young Jason Blum in college. Uh, it was just one of those weird things that popped through my head. If you watch the movie and like take a look at Jason Blum and then take a look at this actor, Isaiah somebody, but he plays Carter, I think, the boyfriend's name. They are dead ringers for each other. That it's You think he got cast because he looked like Jason Blum? Yeah. It's it's un, it's pretty remarkable. Huh. Like I if mean, you look at uh, I I'm not I wouldn't argue maybe he I'm I am sure he does look like Jason Blum. It just seems like a really re- really strange reason to cast somebody. Well, I agree, I agree, but it was just one of those, why are they doing this? <laughs> well, it looks if you, I would like complain if he was a bad actor. I don't think he was bad in the movie. No, he's <laughs> so, not. Yeah. No, he's not. He, he, his character is great. He's good in it. It was just one of those weird side notes that I'm like, hmm. okay, this be, what, why this choice? <laughs> but and, anyways, yeah, interesting little Timbit. He grew up with Noah, uh, went to university with him, and uh, we're like both went to film school together and we're best friends for like the longest times before they had a falling out. Well, as much as I am a fan of Noah Bombach, he is definitely one of those guys that I get the feeling like uh, you probably don't want to meet. <laughs> you can enjoy his movies, but maybe not enjoy drinking a beer with him. <laughs> really? Okay. I could be wrong, but you know, there's certain celebrities that I'm big fans of that I would like to meet, and other ones that I just like to like to keep this idea that I have in my head of them. <laughs> I don't want to have that bubble burst. Anyway, I think we've stopped talking about Happy Death Day to you a while ago, so uh, check it out if you haven't.
What we are witnessing here is the return of Titans. How many of these things are there? 17 and counting. That's messed up. Rodan, Kidora. Oh my. They're moving like a pack. They're hunting. They all respond directly to an alpha. We stop this Ghidorah. We stop them all. Is there another creature that might stand a chance against him? So I've been running into this thing in my podcast. It's really, <laughs> it's 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 causing me some measure of uh, stress because do I still believe in film criticism? <laughs> I watched this documentary on The Shining, uh, Room Two Three Seven, where they were taught all these different people having all these different interpretations of The Shining, each one more crazy than the last, and it made me sort of think, like, yeah, everybody, like. Everybody has an opinion, like everybody has an asshole, and like, what's the value of things like this? And it's amazing how the circumstances when we watch a movie can affect you. With Godzilla, King of the Monsters, there was two things that worked against me for it. I really liked the writer-director, Michael Doherty. He gave us Trick or Treat. He gave us Krampus, two movies which I have big love for. And, uh, you know, it was it's an exciting big-scale PG monster movie, which is something that I could maybe talk my kids into watching. The thing is, is that my kids went and saw it in the theaters without me. My, oh. my two boys went to the movie theaters like with their mom. They oh. got to pick the movie, and they chose to see Godzilla, King of the Monsters, their first big screen monster movie, without their dad. And I gotta say, it hurt my feelings a little bit. <laughs> so I watched it again with them, but I and I liked the movie fine, but I feel like... I probably would have liked it more if I watched it with my boys in the theater than if I watched it with them the second time on TV. And that's not a fair reason to like the movie less. I'm just acknowledging that that happens. So, <clears throat> I like the idea of Godzilla, I think, maybe more than I've liked the reality of Godzilla. Ever since I was a kid, like, I would see that Godzilla versus Mothra was going to be playing at 2 in the morning on some obscure channel. And I would set the VCR and tape it and get super excited to watch it. And when I watched it, I'd be kind of, even in my young age, where I had great suspension of disbelief, be disappointed. Like, it's clearly two guys in clunky suits having a fight over top of a bunch of models. And even at the age of 8, I recognized it. So in this day and age, with the special effects being what they are, where we can create any image we want... This should be the age where Godzilla really fully works. And much like the first reinterpretation of Godzilla, and I'm talking about 
the first iteration of this one, not the Roland Emmerich Godzilla, which you and I took the big shit on. I think that movie took itself way too seriously, the first Godzilla of this franchise. And this movie is sort of going back to the simplistic, dumb fun of two monsters fighting each other. It's just a, a kid with two action figures smashing them together and, 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 and enjoying that. On a basic spectacle level, does the movie work? I think it does. Am I excited about it? I am not. It's an average movie from a director who usually does above average movies. It's okay. It delivers the spectacle of Godzilla fighting things, but I didn't get wrapped up in it. I didn't get emotionally invested in it. The whole arc with Vera Formiga didn't make a lot of sense to me. And uh, I wasn't bored, but I'm not like enthusiastic to watch it again. And it doesn't have me like chewing my hand. I can't wait to see Godzilla versus King Kong now. I mean, I'm going to be real. I'm going to watch that movie. <laughs> but in the end of the day, it's just okay. And I wanted it to be more but part of me thinks that I'm just bringing too much baggage to this. Like, why am I overthinking Godzilla King of Monsters? It has a three-headed dragon in it and a giant moth. And, like, it just wants to be big and crazy and full of monster fights. And it is successful in that measure. So uh, is the problem the movies, or is it me? Um, I think your 13-year-old boy needed to show up yeah, and watch this movie. Um Full confession here, you and I, I think it's pretty safe to say, are big fans of the monster movie genre, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I'm not I'm not stretching, you know, too far out here. <laughs> I've never really been a big Godzilla fan, and I don't know why. Um, because it, it's, it's monsters destroying stuff. I get excited when dinosaurs eat people and destroy things. I love Seraph and Corner Doyle's The Lost World. You know, I... I even have the Relic on Blu-ray. I don't know a lot of people that have the Relic on Blu-ray. Well, I have but the Relic on Blu-ray. Godzilla is something that I've... Never, you know, there you go. <laughs> um, but Godzilla is something that I've never really been overly enthused about. Um, even the old ones, like the appeal, at least for Western audiences, is... And, I, and there's this, kind of this weird racist undertone to it where we're seeing a man in a suit. We get sort of bemused by seeing Asian people run in horror and the bad dubbing like Godzilla. It's the campy nature of the old Toho movies that were sort of appealing. You know, that joke in, in, in Jurassic Park, The Lost World, where it has, you know, a bunch of Asian people running away from that big Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm -hmm. That sort of, you know, the appeal of the old Godzilla movies. The less is said about the Emmerich version, probably the better. But color me surprised, I was amused by Godzilla, King of the Monsters, but I was in the right frame of mind where my 13-year-old boy was like, yeah! Well, and that's Anytime the... What, sorry, I, that's the thing that I usually connect to. That's what I love about the Jurassic Park movies. Even the ones that I know are stupid, yeah. there's a little kid inside of me that just likes to see people getting eaten by dinosaurs. But this is a different yeah. thing. Godzilla doesn't, as a rule, eat people. He just fights other big no. monsters and other people kind of get in the way, get squished by accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing that, that Michael Daltrey did, because one of the big complaints about Gareth Edwards' Godzilla is we spent a lot of time before we actually see Godzilla. And we don't see him a whole lot, except maybe the exception of the last 20 minutes. And that's a two and a half hour movie. 
That problem is fixed really quickly in Godzilla King of the Monsters. No, you paid you your money to monsters? see Godzilla. You paid your money to see Godzilla, you're going to yeah. see Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. No one more yeah. obscuring him with rain and clouds and like... Uh, I, I can barely watch that first version projected. It's so dark. Like, you can hardly see what's going yeah. on most of the time. This movie definitely yeah. is much more clear and knows that its star is Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no. Um, and the 13-year-old boy loved, loved Mothra and it loved Godzilla. And even Rodan, like, I thought that was great. And even our quote-unquote, you know, monster uh, antagonist, uh, is it Gadara or Gadara? Yeah. Whatever. The, three, the three-headed dragon monster, the, you know, the alien, if you will, makes a formidable foe for Godzilla. But really, anytime the humans are on screen, I wanted to pull my hair, most especially the Vera Farmiga character. Her motivations for doing what she does... No sense to it. Not, not even like in a high school level kind of critical thinking sort of way it's so dumb it is so dumb spoilers she's the villain of the piece she's an eco-terrorist who thinks the best thing for the world is to release a bunch of monsters to eat everybody it makes no fucking sense at all it doesn't pretend to make sense at any point like they know that the reason you're there is to see the monster fights and this is the the quickest way they could find to unleash all the beasts and it's sloppy and the thing is is doherty is not typically sloppy to me he'll make silly fun elements to his movie krampus is like all over the place as far as its strangeness but the world seems consistent Another holdover from the yeah. first movie is the first movie is quite bloodthirsty with its characters. Like, uh, yeah. a lot of people complain that Brian Cranston, spoilers, is barely in the movies, but they're like for like 45 minutes and then they kill him off. And it's like, we've lost our yeah. most interesting character. I was genuinely surprised, not just that Sally Hawkins died, but how quickly and unceremoniously Sally Hawkins died. The Ken Watanabe character, they at least made a moment out of his death. But these are the two carryovers from the previous film. And Sally Hawkins, yeah. maybe in the in-between, she did The Shape of Water and thought maybe she was too now too big to be in a Godzilla movie. Maybe she wanted out. But those were the two holdovers, other than a brief cameo of David Strathairn from the first movie. And I feel like yeah. at the end of the movie, we don't have anybody left from the first movie, really. Like, no, uh, we don't. And I think that in its way... Other than maybe being totally consistent with the first movie, it was Michael Doherty saying, the star of the Godzilla franchise, you dumb sons of bitches, is Godzilla. Okay? So anything... Anything beyond that is a distraction. Honestly, I'm starting to think that these movies should just be real and be an 80-minute computer fight between a monster and another monster. And... Uh, some people will dismiss them the way I dismiss the Transformers franchise. But at, le- at least it just is what it is, and uh, we can go in knowing that. In a way, trying to legitimize or make not crazy and ridiculous the world of Godzilla is a losing battle. Yeah. It's just a ridiculous, crazy world. Yeah. Embrace it. Yeah, but even with the Godzilla, fil- Godzilla films, we're never really there for the humans anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, we're there to see the monsters and the monsters throw down and we get excited by that and to that we get um i won't lie to you 
when the U- when Godzilla and the U.S. Army actually team up to fight Godara, Godara, whatever its name is, and like Godzilla's charging in, my little thirteen boy was like, yeah, and then Mothra comes in to help out. Like I was smiling here, and I didn't smile during Gareth Edwards Godzilla. So I think Michael Daughtry. There was so much focus and money put on the monsters, and you can tell, and you can see it. They look beautiful. Uh, you know, there's great color palettes to it. That's what we're there to see. With, yeah, and like even when when Godzilla goes down with by a nuclear missile, I was like, oh no. Um, so when the monsters are on screen, I'm given. You know, I'm excited. When the, when it's time for the humans, I, I like I said, I just want to pull my hair. <laughs> Charles Dance and. Charles Dance is is fine in it as the other eco-terrorist. Useless character. Useless character. Yeah. I will say this, but any movie that has Bradley Whitford, you go up a notch in quality, though. (laughs) But they could have done more with him. Like, really, he had a few good lines, a few zingers here and there, but he was just the guy at the computer to a large extent. You're right. I mean, anything that's not Godzilla-related is a distraction. And if that was, yeah. if I was making a Godzilla movie, I would make the time in between Godzilla scenes as minimal as I possibly could, and I wouldn't make it a two and a half hour epic. I would make it an eighty to ninety minute special effects extravaganza. I think that's what these movies want to be. I think they might be overthinking it a little bit. I'm not. Maybe. I'm not. I'm not. And I'm being it? harder on the movie than I should be. It, it's a good movie, um, and I bet no. you, if I revisit it in the right frame of mind, I'll be able to point and laugh and just just have fun with it. It's just like, and I think it's probably a better movie than the the Edwards version of Godzilla. Yeah. In a lot of ways, yeah. it just it knows how to be a Godzilla movie, and it has more. It has more Godzilla in it. Again, yeah. what did we come to see when we went to pay our ticket to see Godzilla King of Monsters? It wasn't rain and clouds, you know, it was Godzilla. And yeah. the movie delivers Godzilla, so points there, yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, no. Well, like I said, I, I go back to the scene where Godzilla's charging in, and he's like super Godzilla at this point. He's come back from the dead. I actually had a big smile on my face, and I thought, well... You know, if your goal is to achieve and, and please the 13-year-old in me, then mission accomplished. That's why uh, I always feel like I'm defending this movie, uh, but half of it's so bogged down with the human story that it, 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 it's really not needed. Even like the Millie Brown, what's her name? The Stranger Things girl. Stranger Things. Yeah, I don't remember her act. I don't remember her name, but like Millie something Brown. Millie. Uh, yeah, anyways, like, what is she doing in that movie? What, what what does she do? She even knows of the plot that her mother's doing it, of what, what she's doing it, and she's old enough to kind of go, this is a bad idea. Yeah. She doesn't know all the full, uh, the full motivation or the whole plan, but enough to kind of go, this is wrong? No. That <laughs> so, whole emotional arc, even at the end, when like Vera Farmiga sacrifices herself to try and put it like in some way vaguely undo... I didn't feel anything about it. I didn't care about that whole, like, this little girl sees her mom die and cries, and it's a big emotional thing, and it should be impactful. I don't give a shit. I didn't, like, that didn't, not only did that not work at all, like, not that I didn't feel anything, like, 
the opposite of what they were going for happened there. Like, I, I felt they wanted me to care, and I felt myself actively not caring about that point of the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nope. Oh, no, I know, I know. It's strange when, when the monsters on screens, you're engaged in their story. When the humans show, meh. Agreed, brother. For 27 years, I dreamt of you. I think the lesson to be learned from both of the it adaptations that we've seen so far is that as much as it intuitively makes sense to cleave the novel in two and tell the story of the kids and then tell the story of the adults, the story of the kids is just so much more frightening and so much more compelling and so much more just interesting than the adults that what we have is a lopsided narrative. In you, when reading the novel, you don't have that problem because we're constantly ping-ponging back and forth between the adults. But a lot of the time, in the modern age of the story of it, as the Losers Club grown-up reunites in Derry to face off against Pennywise again, and this is true in the book, other than Pennywise jumping out from behind a bureau to say, Boo! and hello, I'm still here, mainly they walk around Derry and they remember their childhood that they've forgotten. And the more they remember, the more they get scared, and the more they have to prepare themselves for this confrontation that happens. The scariest elements of the story, by the time we start this part of the movie, have kind of already happened. Because I think we're just more scared for children than we are for adults. It's true in the miniseries, it's true here. A lot of derision have been given to it chapter two and part of it goes to the obvious fact that it's just clearly not as good as it chapter one but is it bad i would argue that it's not bad it's just so much less good than part one that i understand why some people feel like it's bad it's interesting when matt and i reviewed it Chapter 1, we spent the bulk of the review talking about the stuff we didn't like in the movie while coming to the conclusion that we really liked it. And I feel like I'm in danger with this movie doing the opposite. Is that we, There's a lot of problems with the movie for me. There's a lot of problems with the movie for me. And yet, at the end of the day, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to defend IT Chapter 2. There are a few things that I do not like and that I will call out. But I think that as a whole... I'm really happy with this adaptation of the, the, the story of it. When, not if, but when Hollywood gets around to telling the story again, they're going to have to either do it as a TV show or do it where they break it up and they ping pong the narratives. Because, like I said, we learned it in the TV miniseries and we learned it again here. The adult side of the story is just inherently less interesting and less frightening 
than the kid's side of the story. That's built into the novel, and that's something that the movie had to deal with. Is it as good as the first half? Not at all. Is it bad? Not at all. That's where I start with It, Chapter 2. It was weird going in and sitting down into the theater and watching the lights go down for It, Chapter 2, where I was going in with lowered expectations, and I couldn't really figure out why at the time. Because I really overall enjoyed Andy Muschietti's It, Chapter 1. I thought he got more things right than he got things wrong. And, you know, it was one of the highest grossing horror movies ever. So I should be like, okay, here we go. But I was going into It, Chapter 2 with lowered expectations and came out pleasantly surprised. Yes, there are some problems with It, Chapter 2. And yes, I agree that Pennywise just isn't as scary anymore with adults. Part of it is, is that we see Pennywise a heck of a lot more and a heck of a lot more in daylight, where in the first one, we see a lot of them in the dark. Um, there are genuinely chilling, terrifying moments to It Chapter 1 where I don't think that there's maybe one or two jump scares that maybe go, ah, but it's not a really scary movie. I don't know. That hate Where crime it's... that opens the movie is pretty fucking yeah. hard. <laughs> like No, no. I, I, I agree that the violence in the movie is nastier and more brutal. That's strange. Like, I was wincing hardcore, but I wasn't afraid right. at all. Like, I wasn't going, Ugh, like I was in Chapter 1, whether it's the scene in the garage with the slide machine or, you know, they're in, they're in that room with all those sort of fake clowns of Pennywise in there. There was moments where I was going, ah, I didn't really, you know, had my fingers to my mouth at all with it. Chapter two. Was I entertained? Absolutely. I was definitely engaged. But were you actually ever scared in it? Chapter two? I'm a tougher cookie to scare, I think, than a lot of the average person. And I went in knowing like everything's going in. There's a few scenes that went boo and I jumped. But uh, I wasn't gnawing on my my hand or anything like that. But that's an increasingly rare experience for me. That's sort of the thing I'm looking for when I'm watching like a horror movie. <clears throat> Once yeah. again, uh, I, I some of the issues I take are, are with the changes that are kind of pointless to me. I don't know why they would make certain changes. I complained in the first movie when all the kids went down into these sewers in the book. They're followed by Henry and his gang, and his gang gets killed off by Pennywise. It, gives Pennywise more of a body count. It gives us more of what we want to see, which is Pennywise doing his thing. Same thing is repeated in the second chapter. In the novel, uh, Bill's uh, wife follows him to Derry. In the novel, you know, uh, so yeah, why not have Pennywise kill the bullies in the sewer when the kids are there? And why not have Beverly's evil husband and, and, you know, why not bring more meat to the grinder for Pennywise? Of all of the things to cut, that seems strange to me, especially considering how little the adults really, when you get down to it, have to do. They end up creating scenes and flashbacks with the younger kids, uh, basically to remind us of the other better movie <laughs> in a lot of ways, as opposed to helping tell the story. If you're going to split the movie in half and focus one on the kids and one on the adults, then do that. But this movie seemed to sense that we're going to be so much comparing these two movies that we had to connect it. The de-aging of the kids did kind of stand out for me. I mean, it was unavoidable, 
but it was definitely there. And um, so the solution was to find something for the adults to do. And unfortunately, I think the approach was to have more flashbacks <laughs> and uh, or create stuff. The whole business with the carnival and James McAvoy and that little kid. He has a scene where he meets a kid on a skateboard and he's living in his old house. That happens in the book. But everything else in the movie is a complete invention. And you just don't need it. You just don't need it. That was there to give McAvoy something to do other than walk around Derry and lament his lost childhood. Which is, at the end of the day, what the adults are asked to do. And that, no, is not as interesting as these little kids discovering not only is there a monster in Derry, but only they can see them, and they're the only ones in a position to do anything about it. The stakes just consequently aren't there. Like I say, if they ever do a new adaptation of this, I think that the King had it right. We have to jump back and forth. And, like I say, give Pennywise more meat for the grinder. In both movies, Pennywise is weakened. And I don't understand that choice I just don't but here's some stuff that does work the cast pretty much across the board I'm happy with everyone Agreed. went on Agreed. about Bill Hader's performance and I'm not going to fight you on Bill Hader's performance but I, I really liked the what, what is the guy who plays Mike Mustafa I can't remember the actor's name uh, anyway. oh, I uh, Isaiah Mustafa Mike Hanlon Isaiah, Isaiah Mustafa plays Mike, yeah. I felt like Mike got ripped off in the first movie a little bit. Yeah. Like his character disappears from the movie for a long time. And in the novel, he's the one who's obsessed with the history of Derry. And for some reason in the movie, they gave that to a different character. All of yes. a sudden, yeah. Ben becomes the guy who does all the research. All of a sudden, like he is more the leader of the Losers Club for the first two-thirds of this movie than Stuttering Bill. And you know what? Yeah. I kind of think that works. In a way, he's earned it. Everybody else got yeah. to leave Derry and leave these like awesome, successful lives and forget all about Pennywise. Whereas Mike spent 30 years remembering every single terrifying thing that happened, living in abject poverty, and basically preparing for this secondary confrontation, which in the book he doesn't even get. In the book, Mike doesn't even get to go down in the sewers with them. So uh, I like how much they gave Mike to do in this movie. But I think they gave Mike a lot to do at the cost of the McAvoy character. Because Stuttering Bill ends up yeah. with very little to do. They have to invent stuff for him to do. That's a cool sequence in the carnival. I, don't get me wrong. But, like, I don't know. With a, a novel as generous as it, it seems weird that they felt the need to invent so much. Well, yeah, yeah, like, some of the changes, and even some of the things they take out, I didn't mind they took out uh, uh, Bill, yeah, Bill, Bill's wife uh, narrative in the second part. It, it, she's in the first book, is she not? Well, I mean, she, she's referenced because, well, in, in the novel, we're ping-ponging back and forth. But she is in the book, and she does follow uh, Bill to Derry. She is in the lair with it during the final confrontation. That all happens yeah. in the book, and it's not here at all. And I don't know yeah, why. No, like, she actually gets a bit of a character art, and she is completely jettisoned from the movie, barring one scene where she comes across kind of like a like a dork, like a douche in her own right. Well, they um, just do so that, that, little that, that, with her that it's like, why did you bother with the character at all? 
Yeah. You're going to do yeah. that little with her? Just just have him on a movie set get the phone call. Don't acknowledge yeah. his wife. What was the point? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you talked about how that there was no motivation for Bill. Well, his motivation is that the fact that his wife is taken by Pennywise. It's cliche, but th- that's motivation enough for him. That's completely gone. We, we don't even need the scene with the bike in a lot of ways with Stephen King in, in chapter two. It, it's really, it's not filler. It's just, I don't even know why it's there. That's not, like his token is is the paper. Boat. Boat. Oh, yeah. that's the so thing. The whole business with the tokens. Because we're not, we're not going to have the payoff with him riding his bike with the wife and her waking up at the end. No. We don't have that. So why is that there? And again, the whole business with the tokens is invented. They all have to go on these walking tours so that they can remember what happened, so they can know what they're up against. But the movie decides yeah. to treat it almost like a video game. They all have to find this symbolic token of their childhood. And maybe that's just sort of a narrative simple device for a movie, but like to, yeah. it's clear more clear in a movie than it, you know, it would be for us in a novel when we can get inside people's heads, but this is yeah. where we start knocking into things that rough that just I think were abjectly mistakes in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, also the the Henry Bowers character. I once again I kind of felt he got shortchanged in the first one. So when he comes back in the second one, he's actually more of a threat in a lot of ways than than Pennywise actually is. Um, but because he got shortchanged in the first part it, it's just the pull's not as strong with him i don't know i just kind of felt that his character got the short end of a stick it was one of those sacrifices made i mean there's um, a it's one of these sprawling narratives there's lots of characters we have seven members of the losers club we have their immediates and we have it itself someone was going to get the short end of the stick i understand that yeah i think yeah. for me though machete makes a couple of mistakes in this movie that are shocking that to me, like as a filmmaker, I've got a lot of respect from him, from mama, everything I've seen. He's been like a really cogent, really, really smart horror filmmaker. There's a scene where Eddie is in the basement of the drugstore and he sees the, uh, that really sickly grotesque creature that he'd seen in his childhood again. The The leper attacks him and vomits into his face, and they do this sound cue for uh, Angel of Morning as the vomit happens, like this big pop music soundtrack kicks in, and it is the most staggeringly wrong-footed decision. I, have, I, I couldn't believe it. It took any terror, any grotesquery, anything. It wasn't funny. It didn't help the scene. It was so clearly a stupid decision that i can't fucking believe that it's in the movie like i was shocked at how bad and like that was uh, like that's terrible i can't believe that that's in the movie like i am shocked by that moment because that's an undercutting of your own and and the comedy in the movie is hit a little bit too hard and as much as i love bill Hader, he's part of the responsibility of that and you talked yeah. about you talked about the cameo by Stephen King and the whole business with the bike. You are one hundred percent correct. We don't need the bike. We don't need that scene. I like Stephen yeah. King, and by itself, as a little hello, yeah. there's Stephen King waving. 
we don't fucking need yeah. that scene. And it's so clearly nope. superfluous. It's so clearly saying, hello, this is a movie that it actively yeah. takes you out of the movie. Like it yeah. actively takes you out of the movie. He's not bad in the scene. He's like actually by Stephen King's st- cameo standards. No, the scene itself is fine. It's fine. It's but not it kills the movie. It's, like it's you just, just don't need it. You don't need that, and it's it just takes you out of the movie. Any if if the few scenes before that had got you back into it, that rattled you right out of it. That angel of morning moment took me right out of the movie, and it took me a couple scenes to get back in. Yeah, but um, I'll defend for me, the end where of the I movie. I got frustrated. Uh, and, and right now Hollywood's all the rage with this technology where you can de-age people. Right. I haven't seen Gemini Man, but that, that was its whole gimmick was this new technology. It worked a lot better in The Irishman. It, this technology looks terrible here. It's not going to age like, well, no. Yeah, like here's a scene, here's a scene where we're, we're supposed to, once again, have these bonding moments with the losers as kids. And we are so distracted by some of the CGI de-aging, especially on young Finn. Yeah. Uh, His jawline has completely changed from the first movie, and they cannot correct for it. It it looks so... And this is such an easy fix. And this is all to do with planning. Like, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it at least in two parts, both with the kids and the adults. Film the kids all at once. Film and all film all their scenes all at once, so you're done. Even if you don't make it chapter two, like let's say it one bombed, and you had no you know justifiable financial reason to do it, you could put it as extra deleted scenes on the DVD. So film those scenes when they were young. Boom, that's it. Then you don't have to go back and use this technology where it, it takes you out of the movie. That was one thing that I didn't understand. Well, they didn't know that it was going to be a mega hit. It Chapter 1 was designed to stand on its own. If it hadn't been a mega hit, then... But you're right. The smart move would be to shoot everything at once. They didn't have that option. So is Maya in the room? Should we? they could have had that option. That's why I don't understand. Like, even if they didn't have a script for It Chapter 2, they knew that they were going to use the kids again. And then, like, any... They didn't use the thing. They did not think it was going to be that big a hit. They wanted. There was times no, where they were trying they to make were it. A, make a sequel, though. Like, no, they didn't leave. They like they were they were talking about making it a PG movie. They were so nervous about it. That's the line in the sand that Muschietti drew. He's like, if we're going to make a feature film of it, it's going to be R-rated, or I don't know why we're bothering, right? Yeah. But the, that made them nervous. So it's like, okay, but it's got to be designed so that it can stand by itself. If it doesn't make the money we want it to, then at least it's it's the, the sequel is not necessary. So... The, well, it, chapter one was designed to stand on its own, and that's why they did it that way. It, I guess that, that that was such a bad decision. Like even even if it chapter one bombed financially, film those scenes, man. Like mm, film them. Yeah. Well, they didn't have a script yet. Clearly, in, you know that they were going to show up in some fashion in chapter two. It's almost impossible if you're going back. And visiting the kids, connecting it with the adults, at some point you're going to need them. Yeah. But they're going to obviously age. So well, th- that was the one of the things that as I was watching that scene going, this is so unwarranted. Where just could have, even, even if they saw the box office receipts on the first weekend of It Chapter 1, they knew right then and there, oh, we're doing a sequel. 
go out right then and say, look, kids, we need to film these scenes right now. But first you have to write the scenes, Lee, and then you have to book the actors. Bad planning decision. You have to write the scenes, and then you have to book the actors who are all busy. Like, it was just not reasonable to do it that way. I understand your frustration, but they couldn't do it that way. Going back to the actual movie that we're (laughs) reviewing, though, I will defend the ending of the movie, which is something that a lot of people take a lot of issue with. And that frustratingly, the movie keeps calling itself on. They keep on saying, people don't like the ending of Bill's books, and people don't like the ending of Stephen King's books. I hate that they feel the need to prepare us for it. That they're suddenly able to bully Pennywise to death seems very anticlimactic to people. But man, will I ever sure. take it over that like stop-motion spider that we got at the end of the miniseries. And I think emotionally yeah. the movie pays off, and and seeing Pennywise, you know, made helpless and terrified the way he's made so many children helpless and terrified, I think it was satisfying for me. The spectacle no. and the goofy stuff all around it, uh, you know, we can take or need, leave. I didn't like that they revisited the doors. I thought that was stupid, but whatever. Like, yeah. they didn't hurt the movie for me. It was just like, yeah, we saw the top half of Betty Ripton last time to this time. We're going to see the bottom half. Great. But it's the same yeah. gag. It's the same gag. Uh, yeah, no. As that far as Look, using the, the kids. Spider, and then it, this is a problem with the novel. The spider doesn't work. It really, really doesn't. It's so goofy and over the top. I'd rather have just the, the, the deadlights itself than... It, you know, it turning into that spider creature. Yeah. I know it's in the book, but it just it doesn't work for me. Um, to defend I the book, like the fact that they... to defend the book, what they say is is that the thing that that it takes its final shape as is indescribable, but that their mind interpret it to be some kind of spider thing, right? Like it's not really yeah. adequately described because it's sort of in Lovecraftian and that it's almost indescribable. It hurts their brain to look at it. So like this was a compromise. It was a spider clown, a giant spider clown and like fine, you know? Uh, Yeah. It mostly works. Like, what did you think about the hairs, winter fire, January embers, you know, the connection between Bev and Ben? Fine. It, it, It works. I mean, the romance is a little rushed. Um, fine it didn't bother me for me um, that was the one it, element it, it's elevated honestly like all the actors are so strong as the losers that's one of the things about it chapter two that works so well yeah is that we buy a lot of the hokey stuff that they're trying to sell for me the one thing that the miniseries did better than the new movie is that relationship between ben and bev i think it's a little bit maybe even a lot bit cheesy them reciting the poem to each other like it but and that's not in the book but it is something that is very Stephen King like like I bide in the universe and I don't necessarily take issue with it but I just liked it I thought it was handled better between Annette O'Toole and John Ritter frankly than Jessica Chastain and this uh, New Zealand actor whose name currently escapes me they're fine in it I'm not even saying anything bad about them but it's one of yeah. those movies Jay where Ryan, Jay Ryan is the actor's name right it's one of those movies where most of the isolated scenes by themselves, I think, work. The whole business with Mrs. Kirsch, that's a great sequence. The whole business with the yeah. China, the, 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 the uh, cookies, the fortune cookies in the restaurant, that's a great sequence. 
the scene under the bleachers with the little girl and Pennywise. Great sequence. The scene at the beginning of the movie where the, there's that hate crime. It's terrifying, but it's a great sequence. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great scene. Somehow, though, all of those sequences tied together don't add up to a great movie. Just a good one. The first half yep. is great. The second half is good. And that's kind of yep. where I wash up. Uh- uh, it, it does tickle me in the right way. Any movie that wants to like do a an homage or a shout out to the greatest horror movie ever made, The Thing, oh, yes. is always going to get a smile on my face. I do love that Chinese restaurant scene. Yeah, that's handled really well. And so a big shout out when they do the when they they literally do it almost line for line from The Thing. Yeah, from you got to be fucking kidding me on down. That made me smile and go, yay! Yeah. Cheap ploy? Maybe. But the whole Chinese restaurant scene is is, is so good. Yeah. And that's when the movie does work. Yeah, it, it's it's strange. There's you know The criticisms are pretty easy. But I did actually quite enjoy it, Chapter 2. And it's making me sound like I didn't, which is strange. I, I guess I was, ple- like, I, like I said, I went in with lowered expectations and was sort of pleasantly surprised by it that i thought okay this is this is better than i thought it would be i agree a lot of people thought it was too long Mm. and i didn't think that at all like when they were finally getting to the sewers i kind of went we're here already okay it earns its epic status i'm enjoying that it's an epic book so the movies i think deserve to be epic as well like it earns that i think um Yeah, but I I just go back to the first movie is great, the second movie is good. I am I'm happy with it overall, but um, it would have been great if the second had matched the first. But I think just the choice of doing the adult story and then the kids story kind of it, it handicaps the second half of it. And again, give Pennywise yep. some more meat for the grinder. There were things that I would change, but uh, for the most part, I walk away happy. But I will stand by what I said in the introduction of the movie. In a way, I feel Dr. Sleep deserved the success that this got. And this one kind of deserved a bit more of the rebuke that it didn't get. <laughs> but I like both yeah. movies. I like both movies. Um, and if, yeah. if this brings about you know, a, a new age of Stephen King adaptations, I'm very much in favor. Uh, as much as I was you know, shocked by some of the mistakes made in the movie, I would not give up on Andrew Machete as a director. Anything he no, puts his no. name on, Machete, I will check that out. Machete is very, very talented. Uh, uh, I think he's very, very good. And could, and you know what? Kudos for him doing you know this big adaptation and spending years of his life five years for a really strong it adaptation. Um, for those you know, like you and I who grew up on the miniseries, um, this generation has a better overall a better version of it. Yeah, um, and it, it's really, really good. Um, I guess one question I have because we're I, I feel like we're nearing the end of the review. So, who did it better, uh, Scarsgard or or our original Pennywise? I think Pennywise is maybe truer to the vision of the novel as I could believe him as a lure. No one's going to look at Skarsgård and say, oh, that's a friendly clown I should go walk up and talk to, right? He actively drools whenever he's talking to children. Like, he is just an evil fucking clown. But I mainly took that as them making a conscious decision to make their Pennywise different than Tim Curry's Pennywise. I think that Skarsgård's Pennywise is scarier. I think that Tim Curry's Pennywise is truer to the source material. How's that for an answer? 
There you go. Good enough? Good, good enough. reviews six sequels from 2019 uh, and for the most part I'm gonna say pretty strong sequels from 2019 I mean <laughs> some exceptions but I, I found it a difficult rank and uh, I, I just made it personal like I usually do if it becomes difficult I just I'll just go with my heart over my brain when it becomes this close so I'm I agree with you you said just before I pressed record that I, you don't think we're gonna agree I I agree I think we're gonna disagree but I don't think we're gonna fight over it I think it'll be okay no. <laughs> so no like, well, like like I said earlier I thought number one was pretty obvious and the rest it's really like different shades yeah uh, and then I watched 47 meters down <laughs> You're going to be shocked where it, where it lands, dude. Okay. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. All right. But, well, let's hear it. What was your least favorite of these six sequels and why? Well, I did enjoy it, um, but it's dumb. Um, but whenever the monsters were on screen, I was cheering for it. And then my 13-year-old boy was like, yeah! <laughs> and, I, and like, truth be known, confession, I'm not a huge Godzilla fan. So at number six, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Love the director, and I think he did the best job he possibly could, and he was the right director. Whenever the humans are on, I don't care, and right. they're even frustrated. But go Kajira. Go Kajira. <laughs> at number five, I was pleasantly surprised, but happy death day to you. Um, it in some ways should rank higher. Um, I enjoyed it, uh, I, and I liked the fact, but also did, also thought that the sci-fi element sort of weighed it down, and it took a while to find its true beating heart. And that's when it, when it showed its dark nature with her killing your, killing herself. That's when I was like, "Me right you, me right you a lot." So at number five is Happy Death Day to you. At number four, and, and this is because I hold uh, Zombie Land in such high regard. But Zombieland Double Tap, I have at number four. It is really more of the same, and it's charming, but like the movie even says at the beginning, there's been so much zombie entertainment. Thank you for choosing us. I kind of go, it's fine, but I really don't see myself visiting this movie anytime soon. There's nothing wrong with it. It makes me laugh. I love the characters, um, but the magic is kind of gone. And that's just because I think I might have been a little too little too late, maybe. Maybe. So, number four, I have Zombieland. At number three, and this is where I just kind of, I start scratching my head, but I have It Chapter 2 at number three. Um, it's still, it, it's a good movie. Uh, some of the problems, they could have, I, I don't know, like I said, better planning, they could have, they could have, um, fix some of the problems and some of the changes I kind of go huh but the cast is so strong it, it does save the movie and it does want to please me and overall it's it's a fairly good adaptation of Stephen 
is it. It's got its flaws, but it's it, it's a good movie. So at number three, I have It Chapter Two. At number two, Lord help me, Larry, and I am so fucking embarrassed to put it at number two. I can't believe I'm doing this because this movie is is terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but I have to be honest with myself. I have to because this movie. It, it made me go, ah, like scream and yell at the movie in the middle part. I have no credibility as a film critic. <laughs> Not that I had any to begin with, but this proves it that I am full of shit. I have, I can't believe I'm saying this. <laughs> I can't believe 47 meters down, uncaged at number two. This movie is terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> The first half an hour and the last 50 minutes are so bad that they almost, Amphinus almost cancel out what makes the movie work, and that's the hour in between. And it's stupid, like, logically. Like, even from the speakers in, the, the microphones in the masks to the current thing, and it's ripping off better movies. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk Namely about the, the current in the cave. That was stupid. <laughs> yeah. But even with them, like, trying to, like, squeeze the way out, like... I have no fingernails left. I had <laughs> fingernails. I can't believe at number two, and you could shame me. It's forty-seven meters down. I don't. I don't understand it. I, I don't get it. But the movie scared me, and I will make the bold claim that as in two thousand nineteen, that that middle segment is so terrifying. Like literally, the last movie to make me yell at it in terror was Train to Busan. And I love Train to Busan. <laughs> yeah. Why am I yelling at this movie? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I, I just I feel shame for putting at number two. So at number one, of course, is Doctor Sleep. I think that it had like Michael Flanagan had so many things going against them. The fact that he that I don't I wouldn't say he knocked it out of the park, but he did so well with what he was given and the changes he made to the source material actually elevate it um, and the acting like I really enjoyed you and McGregor this time a lot more um, it's such a personal movie and it really to me it, it, it once again like I, I, I was getting sore throats during a couple of scenes even when he gets a visit when Danny gets a visit from his own guardian uh, the Scatman Cothers character Dick Halloran uh, Sorry? Dick Halloran. That's Dick his Halloran, name. When Dick comes to visit him for the final time, I still get choked up by that scene. And that's showing me that I was so invested with this movie. Um, you've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Mike Flanagan is a talent to watch for. Uh, I think he's a great horror filmmaker. I hope he does more movies. Um, really, he did very well with Dr. Sleep. Not a horror movie in a lot of ways, even though there are terrifying scenes. But you can tell that this is a movie about trauma and recovery. I, in a lot of ways, I, I call it another example of me, of me Too Horror, where it's focusing on the trauma experienced by the evils of the past. That seems to be a current theme going on with a lot of good, what I would call Me Too Horror movies, where it's well, an examining people dealing with the trauma from their 
tragic past. Well, not Stephen King, though. Stephen King does that all the time. This whole stand by me, it, even here in in the Doctor Sleep thing, it's all about how you're you're haunted by your past and specifically your childhood. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We only agree in two spots on the list. I wonder if you can guess where those are. Uh, First and last. Nope, but, well, you're half right. You're half right. (laughs) Uh, We disagree in last place. (laughs) Last place is very clearly 47 meters down engaged for me. (laughs) Like, it's an objectively... Once again, I I don't disagree (laughs) with you. I feel for shame putting it at number two, but I had to be honest. It's just objectively a, a bad movie. Uh, I mean, it's an entertaining bad movie. It's a, quote, good bad movie. But it's nowhere near as thought out it's or plausible. Or, or, or it doesn't care about any logic it, to a degree that even the Godzilla movie doesn't. It's, it's just, we're going to throw as much shark shit as you, as, uh, at you as we can, and we're not going to worry about it making any sense at all. Like, we really almost have contempt for your intelligence in this movie. <laughs> But oh, on a on a basic, you know, people in claustrophobic environments and sharks getting at them, yeah, that works. But as I've said in the past in the in the podcast, that's gonna work for me, even in the worst movie, even in some asylum bullshit movie. I'm going to be terrified by the idea of being attacked by a shark. But am I gonna give it a pass and say that it's like better than the rest of these movies? Uh, no, I, I, I'm not. I will say it's a guilty pleasure, and I will say if you were entertained by a review and that sounds like something that you could get behind, for sure watch it. But it is the worst of this stack of movies as far as I'm concerned. And you're not wrong. (laughs) It's just my rubric was, you know, if you're going to, if you're you're trying to scare me, the movie did. Yeah. But I feel shame. In fifth place, Godzilla King of the Monsters. I have this hope that when I come to revisit the movie again sometime, I'm watching it a few years from now with my kids, or just have the feel like watching some Godzilla action, that maybe I will find more to it, just because I've just been typically much more happy with Doherty's work in the past than I have with this one. It's fine, and I think it's actually better to me than the first incarnation of this era of Godzilla. And it's certainly, like, ages better than the Emmerich Godzilla, which still for me has to be one of the worst serious big budget blockbusters of all time. Like, Emmerich's Godzilla is just an abortion. It is just terrible. So, you know, by that measure, this movie's genius. But on this list of movies, I'm putting it in fifth place. In fourth position is the other place where you and I agreed. I wish I could put Zombieland Double Tap higher on the list. It's not a bad movie. It's a good movie. It's 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 just... It, it maybe maybe ten years was too long to wait, or maybe they just didn't need to do a sequel to Zombieland. But I'm happy to say they didn't make a bad sequel to Zombieland. It's fine, um, but it's just not the magic that Zombieland was. It's not as big a drop between one and two as say Ghostbusters one and Ghostbusters two, but it is a full letter grade drop. I would say from the first movie. Overperforming perhaps in third place. Happy Death Day to you. I know I sounded like I was being a little bit more critical of the movie while we were reviewing it. And it was just like, 
on a premise level, it wasn't necessarily maybe what I wanted out of the, or expected out of it, but it successfully raises the stakes and it makes itself different enough from the first movie to justify its existence. That central character is still strong. The concept works well enough. Yeah, they try to set up for that third movie at the end, but at least it's not the whole movie leading up to some cliffhanger that we're never going to see repaid. It works. It works more than it did. It sort of surprised me that it wormed its way into the top three, but it wormed its way into the top three. In second place, this is going to be controversial, but this is where it gets personal. It, chapter two. I recognize that there's issues with it. I fucking love this story. I love this whole universe, this whole Pennywise, Derry, the examination of the death of childhood and the way I just recently talked about where the wild things are. <laughs> which was a movie that broke my heart about, you know, what childhood is and means and, and uh, what mourning the loss of it is about. This is attacking in a lot of ways the similar themes of that in a horror movie construct. It's a deep horror movie. So warts and all, flaws and all, I'm still giving it second place. You heard the review, you heard me acknowledging that there are problems here. But I think that just the epic storytelling at work, Skarsgård, that cast... I think it's strong. I think it's stronger than people give it credit. And I think as time goes on, it will always be the case that we're more scared for the kids than we are for the adults. But they are two halves of a very interesting whole. It chapter two in second place. And yes, Dr. Sleep is number one. And it's solidly number one by a large margin. And I really do hope that people find it come to realize it actually now that i say that out loud the shining didn't do that well theatrically when it was released it was nominated for razzies a lot of people didn't like it and it slowly snowballed into being considered one of the greatest horror movies of all time now one of the greatest horror movies of all time would be overstating it for dr sleep but i would love to see it get that same kind of sort of cumulative appreciation because it deserves it Mike Flanagan hasn't made a bad movie, as far as I'm concerned. Some of his movies are better than others, but he has not made a bad movie. That is impressive. Dr. Sleep might be my favorite of his work, but I mean, it's close. It's still very close to call for me. So I'm, I'm surprised. Considering what he was up against, considering the size of the legend of Kubrick, and considering the fact that I felt like a lot of people would be disappointed in the sequel, not because of who directed it, but just because of the style of it. As a novel, it is so different than The Shining that as a reader, it's jarring. So I can imagine the viewers would find that same thing. He nailed the tone of it. He got the right leading man. And even at three hours, it holds my attention. I will watch it again. Dr. Sleep, number one. Our lists are actually a lot a lot similar than you realize. It's the wrench that 47 meters down threw in, quite right. honestly. Yeah. If you look, if you actually look at them, because our one and two are the same, it's, no, no, it's not. No, it's not. Our one and two are not the same. You do death I two at three. I put 47 meters down at number two. With the sort of, you know, asterisks of, I can't believe I'm doing this. So right. our lids are, are a lot closer. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I, I can't disagree with your ranking because I agree with almost everything you say there. It, it, it was just, I feel shame, but I was manipulated by 47 <laughs> meters down. 
hey, look, I'm a sucker for a shark movie. And like, I, I keep on saying that it's objectively terrible. I'll watch this movie again. I'll watch it lots. Of times. I'll probably, I'll probably skip until they knock over that statue underwater. Like the first half an hour of the movie is brutal. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. It's like, I like, honestly, I was going fuck Parsons. What did you get me into when that whole pop song is? And those four girls are in their bikinis jumping around going, Oh God! Like I, I, for the first for the first while and I was then like, and they go swimming. The first while I was like, couldn't I, I, I be watching Cage Dive right now? <laughs> remember, remember Open yeah. Water Three? How much we lamented how it took forever to start. It, it yeah. by yeah. contrast, that movie is brilliant. <laughs> like, oh, oh, I know, I know, I know. Honestly, this movie has the potential to be like the next Deep Blue Sea, where we know this movie is terrible, but yet we keep going, we keep watching it. I can see that happening. It, it's just one of those things where I'm like, how? How is this possible? I, I will give credit where credit is due. The director is skilled enough on creating suspense and sequences down down in like the caves like he's good he's very good at that and that's what sells the movie for me everything else is so nauseatingly the wrong choice yep that i just go why no it was a bad movie in my list it was a bad movie but sign me up for 47 meters down three whatever (laughs) yeah yep yeah what can i say i haven't even seen the first 47 meters down oh really that's the that's the the sad part and i don't know if i will i just i want the beauty of 47 meters down uncaged to just sort of percolate and digest a little bit for me i don't know if i will see the first one now they're very different movies they both have their flaws i think this one is probably is dumber and more entertaining the first one's smarter and less entertaining but uh it's like the first one feels like they're trying to be a legit real horror movie. Whereas this one is like, what's the quickest way to get these kids in peril? And like, yeah, anyway, like, like honestly, next time that we, we have Chuck, we do have to sit her down <laughs> and I want to see her face <laughs> when we get to that part of the movie, because I can guarantee you she is going to squirm like a worm on the hook. And, uh, for yes. a former guest of Rankin Review, Charlene Roach is who we're talking to, Chuck World. Big love to Chuck if she's listening out there. Uh, yeah, she she loves the shark movie with us. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think we should wrap this up. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much for taking time out of these days of the plague to do a Rankin Review with me. I know we have another one that we need to record that we were all ready to go, but uh, we've been having trouble getting the, all the movies to you, so we kind of quickly put this one together, and I appreciate you doing that for me. Oh, hey, you know it's always a joy to do this. <laughs> and hi, Eric. How's it going, Jerkins? <laughs> well, uh, the G retains the title for the time being, but for how long? I feel bad whoever does take it from G. It'd be like, oh, you should be the champion. I had no problem taking it away from other people, but I mean, if I had won today and I took it from G, I would feel bad. I think that because G and I watched all the movies together, that colored our perception of it. We both watched the movies simultaneously at the same time, same headspace. I think that might have cooked the books, I wonder. Like, yeah. it's hard to say. But whatever, he's the champion, so everyone just has to there live with it for the time being. He, he, He did it the legal way, so what can I say? Until next we speak. Be well, brother. Yeah, yeah.
thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rank and Review. I, as always, am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. You can send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. It's strange days that we're all living through. It's bizarre times. The world feels a little bit out of its place, so look after each other out there. And uh, listen to podcasts, check out a good movie, stay inside, and take care of each other. I drop every other Wednesday.